You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the movie graveyard. We have got a real slam-bam musical treat for you tonight, don't we, Trev? We do, indeed. Uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to speak out of turn here, Goat. I know this is your show, and I'm just a humble guest, but I really do feel like this is the kind of movie that the movie graveyard was created for. Yeah. It's, it's from it the... feels like, you know, this is like a, a cult hit that's... It's one of those cult hits that you know it's a cult hit, because when you meet people who know this movie... They love it, right? And every, everyone who like is into this movie is really into it. But you never feel like you know enough people to know this movie. Yeah, exactly. This this is, uh, you know, came out in the eighties. It had roughly a week and a half theatrical release, but people remember it and love it forever. So that is the perfect movie graveyard movie. I will agree with that. So we're going to go ahead and get rolling. We are rolling off uh, all kinds of Blu-rays. We got American Blu-rays. Oh, should we, we say what the movie is? I guess we do. <laughs> well, I'm sure people read the title. We're talking about yeah, the. That's true. Slam Bam Walter Bill Walter Hill Thank You Ma'am uh, title Streets of Fire. Yep. So yeah, uh, we got it paused on like the black screen uh, right before the Universal logo comes up. So like once you hit play, you'll see the 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 great universe the Universal logo that I grew up with, Trev, and I'm sure you yeah. too. Yeah. Before that that early '90s uh, CGI animated bullshit came out. But, uh, yeah, this is back when Universal was an MCA company. So I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And when I hit go, please hit uh, uh, play on your streaming remotes, uh, on your DVD slash Blu-ray player remotes, and your PS3, PS4, and possibly, if you're one of the lucky few, to win the lottery PS5 remotes. All right, everybody, let's get ready. One, two, three, go. Look at that beautiful, which by the way, like I actually was watching uh, something else recently, Trev, and I saw this Universal logo. It never really dawned on me. When you actually watch it, especially if you watch it in a high definition, like a Blu-ray, that's actually a very good special effect, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it looks great. I mean, it, it looks like the beginning like of, of a sci-fi show or something, you know? Yeah. Like I'm a, you're, and maybe because certain movies do it, I'm always waiting for it to just zoom in to the, the earth there. But, uh, but here we go. Streets of Fire. Uh, I love this, like, not just the title, but then we get this a rock and roll fable. Yeah, and then uh, we get the next card here. Another, Another time. time. Another, Another place. place. Yeah, so cool, so cool. Like right off the bat, just already like in love. <laughs> well, like the opening shot of this is really famous with the the you know the wet street and the neon lights reflecting, and mm-hmm. Walter Hill kind of plays it off like, oh, that was almost kind of like a happy accident. He just kind of noticed it on the day, but I find that hard to believe. That seems so, you know plan from the get-go yeah i mean it just like that opening shot instantly sets the entire aesthetic of the film and then these like super fast cuts i mean this is just a this actually reminds me a lot of the beginning of the warriors yeah um, another walter hill movie we've talked about which is kind of like setting the tone very quickly with a lot of you know quick editing um that of course was playing with time a little bit more but here it's just kind of setting up the world through these quick edits well it's kind of funny too and probably you know part of the um, confusion around this movie when it came out is um pretty much like this is uh like we said like it said a rock and roll fable and the like walter hill really wanted to um 
kind of mixed together all the stuff he loved as a young guy. Like, mm-hmm. he was pretty much like, if I would have made a movie at 15, I would have put all the cool stuff in the world that I love into it. And that was his approach with this film. So, like, you kind of get this hybrid reality fantasy approach where it's like the aesthetics a lot of the 1950s and even earlier decades, um, you know, with clothing and cars and locations kind of mixed with a lot of like kind of like musical choices of like the early 80s i'd say yeah i mean it is a confusing movie but that's what's cool about it i mean we're probably gonna say this a bunch of times while watching this but this is just the kind of studio film you do not see today and i mean and obviously it wasn't a hit at the time either it was this was this was a big risk kind of movie it didn't necessarily pay off um you know financially but it is interesting, and I, I love movies like this. You know, I, I there's other films that we could talk about that do this kind of thing, where it's just it is in its own. Like it, it, it makes sense to say another time, another place, because it is in its own universe. You can't really place where this is in time. You can't place exactly where it is geographically. Uh, it is a fantasy. And to what you were saying about what Hill putting in all of his stuff, he has a quote where he says, um, you know, every he would he wanted to, everything he thought was perfect when he was a teenager, so that included. Uh, custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuit, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. And that's that's what this film is. It's all of that just mixed together into this this puree. Not puree. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the purity of the puree. <laughs> so yeah, so it's like I like to me. I really, you know, especially, you know, kind of revisiting this here in the last week i just think the ingredients are so perfect from the visuals to the music Mm -hmm. to the kind of like the three leads you have in this film um but like this was always kind of like a mythical movie to me trev like uh, i remember seeing it um i'm pretty sure we we rented it after the fact when it hit home video Mm -hmm. um but i remember watching this and like in my memory of um you know, seeing it as a kid, I always remembered it as stylized as this movie is, and it almost gets criticized for being too stylized by people who don't like it, but, like, I always remember this almost being, like, on par with Blade Runner, and then, like, when I kind of, like, rewatched it, I was kind of, like, surprised by how all practical and realistic it actually really is, you know what I mean? It's funny, because my memory, too, is I don't think I ever rented it, but I definitely only encountered this movie on cable growing up. Yeah. And my memory of it as a kid is just what I said, right? When I would see this very young, I didn't know when it was supposed to be taking place because I don't think until the other night when I sat down to, to watch it on Netflix and actually got the idea and, and messaged you about doing this, I don't know that I'd ever seen it from beginning to end. And my memory is as a, as a kid always coming in like halfway through or something, never quite knowing when is this supposed to be taking place? So I must have missed something at the beginning, you know, and always being kind of thrown off by it. Yeah, like, I, re- I clearly remember, like, watching it at home, uh, either via videotape or HBO or something like that, and then, like, I just, out of, like, curiosity, because it was, it was weird, and, like, I don't know if, like, you kind of, like, noticed this, noticed this too, Trev, but, like, movies back then, uh, you know, marketing uh, has changed a lot, but movies back then had, like, an identity, like, you had the soundtrack, you had the movie itself, but, like, the way it was marketed, the trailer... And then, like, the poster, like, every movie had its own font, its own logo. And, like, the poster mm-hmm. for this movie is so burned into my brain and seeing it on video store shelves over the years and all that kind of thing. So, like, this thing kind of, like, this movie was kind of, like, always in the back of my mind, even though, like, I went, like, you know, shit, probably 20 years without seeing it. I remember 
when I first got, you know, OG Netflix, where they send you a DVD in the mail, I remember I visited then in like around 04, 05, maybe 06 at the latest. And then I hadn't seen it again until it hit Blu-ray a couple years ago. And um, yeah, it just like... I don't know. It's it, it it it's it's hard to explain for me, you know, looking back through nostalgic lens. But it's like, it's kind of like different than I remember it. But at the same time, like it's exactly what I remember. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's hard to explain. Yeah, the thing about the poster being burned in your head that oh, I think it's funny is I'm always remember the the video box cover and the poster having that that tagline on it. Tonight is what it means to be young, which of course is one of the songs. And just like now walking, I'm like. I mean, like, I'm older than everyone in this movie now, yeah. but maybe it's just because Defoe and Perry don't look very young. It doesn't really seem right. like this is a movie of youth as much as like I know it's no. meant to be, right? Um, obviously, Diane Lane, very young here. She was only 18 when they made this. Um, yeah. She was just graduating high talk, school. Yeah. yeah. We, haven't, we didn't even talk about her first big musical number there. Now, of course, she's not singing, but she does a, like, a killer job lip syncing in here and really does you know sell like the rock and roll aesthetic, which I know... I read about how when she auditioned, they were a little nervous about that, but she really instantly impressed Walter Hill with how much she just kind of really like put herself forward as like a rock queen, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love the punch sound effects here too. How they put that really big, like bass rumble mm-hmm. on uh, Lee Vang punching everybody, uh, punching Bill Paxton. It's just, uh, it's great. And yeah, the casting is very, very risky at the time. Cause it's like, uh, the script, uh, you know, the the um, Eileen character Diane Lane plays it, originally on the original version of the script it was supposed to be a twenty eight year old woman. Yeah, and then she kind of just came in and blew them away in the audition. And like, I got like it's another movie. I don't, I don't know if you've seen it, Trev, but um, the movie she did like maybe two years before this called Ladies and Gentlemen: The Fabulous Stains, which is like a really cool um, kind of. Uh, kind of it's basically a girl power movie but Mm -hmm. it's about this female um punk band trio that kind of like you know like like literally just a punk trio just they barely start playing and like a promoter kind of puts them on a on a bill with some other punk bands um ray winstone plays a british punker it's a great early role from him and they kind of just take off as a novelty act because uh you know they're three female like really young like teen like 15 16 year old girls like almost like you can tell tell in a way it's almost kind of based on the runaways you know what i mean and it's just this movie where um, Diane Lane, Lane is the, uh, the the front woman there. Um, she it's it's really a coming of age movie, and by the end, like like they take off and they leave the bands that they started out with in the dust, and she's totally just uh, kind of in control. And she and it's just a great movie about her going from being this young skittish girl who like could barely get the courage to go up and sing a song to becoming like this star, and she's like. Like, even to the point where, like, the other people in her band don't like her anymore because she's kind of taken center stage. And I just thought it's so amazing. Like, the most awesome, uh, probably double feature in the world you could probably imagine would probably be watching that movie and then watching this because you could almost take it as, like, kind of like the backstory for her character in this. But, uh, yeah, so I I think doing that movie gave her, like, what she needed to be able to walk into the audition and kind of wow Walter Hill, you know? 
Yeah. I have a different double feature in mind. I've, I've told you this already, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later. But uh, I have a thesis about how I think this movie is a perfect double bill with Mad Max Fury Road. So, oh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll dive into that a little, a little later. But, uh, but here we finally get our, our credits. And uh, before we talk, start diving into these actors, I also just want to talk about, too, like the Walter Hill aspect of it. So, you know, we've talked about the Warriors before, not in a commentary episode, but in our, our Warriors versus Wanderers episode. Yeah. And uh, to me, this really does like this would also just well, actually, I know this would be a great double feature with the Warriors because I literally just did that with a friend. Um, I showed a friend Streets of Fire and uh, it was the first time I watched for her and she loved it so much that she kind of instantly wanted to see like another Walter Hill movie. And so we watched the Warriors, uh, which she also had never seen and, and loved them. So I, I know I can say that those are a great double feature as well. But stylistically, this really feels like I mean, also, well, I guess all Walter Hill films do have a feel to them, but this really does feel like the spiritual sequel to the warriors. It's interesting that this is actually the follow-up to 48 hours, because I yeah. don't think this feels super similar to that. I know 48 hours is basically the reason this movie exists. You know, he had a lot of clout coming off the success of that. And I think it's very cool when someone uses the clout of a big mainstream hit like that to make a film like this. And that's another reason I, I love Walter Hill. Which by the way, Trev, like I was, I was, you know, hearing him relate that kind of how the genesis of this film came about him parlaying his 48-hour success and him pretty much giving a blank check at that point to go make a movie. And it's like, don't you think that's a... I mean, don't you got to respect that when somebody's like, like, okay, like, you know, like like they knew they were, you know, uh, recognizing what the situation was and, like, they knew that this was a movie they probably could never, ever get made at any other time and they just went for it. And, they like, he wasn't worried about, like, how a lot of people are like, oh, I have a hit, now I gotta go have a bigger hit. You know what I mean? It was just like, what do you want to do artistically? It's kind of, like, two-sided for me because, like, I, I, I respect it in that aspect but I also, like, respect it in a way that I legit think that him and like the and like the producers like Joel Silver, I think they actually thought this was going to be a big hit, you know, yeah. which is even more kind of like amazing to me that they they thought everyone would be on their wavelength with this very, very strange film. And it's just another case where I think they're a little bit ahead of their time in terms of what this movie is. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think of these? Uh, I want to ask uh, in, during this, this sequence, what do you think of these bizarre like wipes that he's using for some of the transitions here where it's not quite a star wipe, but it's this strange like scratched wipe that comes across the screen yeah I, I i think it was really like i love it i think it was really and there's a couple other kind of interesting uh editing choices there uh throughout the film but uh i, I love it because i i think he was really trying to go for um you know without directly calling back comic books i think he was going for that comic book type feel you know what i mean yeah, we since know that like so i know he talked about how he, he'd always wanted to make a comic book film but he was not enamored with any of the existing comic books and tom cody uh, the main character here really was his attempt to create a comic book hero of his own but also we now know that his initial conception of the warriors was to have it be very comic booky and of course he went on to do yeah. the director's cut which i hate <laughs> but, but yeah he <laughs> and, was and he does he was the narration <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah Sorry. he was definitely always aiming for that yeah i thought it was interesting too though uh uh, I kind of recognize it off the bat, but the guy who plays this little, you know, leader of this gang who comes in and starts harassing his, uh, Tom Cody's sister and everybody in this coffee shop is actually the guy who ended up playing the uh, the gang leader in uh, the great uh, James Spader film Tough Turf a little bit later. Oh. Yeah. I want to say his name is well, Paul Mones, but I could be wrong. My first observation about Tom Cody, no matter no, what, whatever else you say about him throughout this film, I want to point out what a great brother he is because the telegram we saw her write to him earlier, it just said, 
Tom, come home. I need you. No further explanation or anything. And he, he rushed right home just because his sister sent a two sentence uh, telegram. He's exactly. a good brother. And of course, his, his sister, um, who I think is kind of an unconventional choice to play Michael Pyre's sister, but I, but I like her a lot, is uh, Deborah. Uh, was it Van Valkenburg? And of course, we know her yeah. from yeah, the Warriors. So the Warriors, yeah. It's kind of funny though, because you remember how when we did that Warriors versus Wanderers episode, like we talked a lot about how the films are kind of intertwined and in, like the production history and release almost at the same time and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of interesting that like. Walter Hill kind of, you know, for kind of like his, you know, spiritual follow-up to the to Warriors, he kind of went back to a 1950s aesthetic the way the Wanderers had, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Walter Hill just strikes me as that kind of guy. Obviously, that's the time he grew up, but, you know, you can see why that, that 50s aesthetic of those gangs and that kind of, that culture would just speak to him. Um, I don't, we're going to say a lot about Michael Prey throughout this commentary i'm sure but let me just get this out of the way so i don't forget am i crazy in that especially in this like young michael Perret, does he look a lot like costas mandalar or is that just me like i feel like they are so similar looking you know i i I see that perfectly you know who i was gonna say is uh reminds me of in some shots is uh josh peck when josh peck got older and and Mm. buff and hunky Mm -hmm. but yeah so like michael Paré. um Two years before he was headlining this movie, he was a chef in a restaurant. So it's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. He had done Eddie and the Cruisers before this, and Walter Hill had seen that. So that's kind of like what, you know, got his foot in the door. But um, pretty much from what Walter Hill was saying was, like, he just wanted, like, a certain, basically a certain kind of coolness and physicality yeah. to the role of Tom Cody. And he is perfect for that. I mean, in my the review I just wrote of this on Letterboxd, I said that. Uh, so let me just I'll preface this by I'll I'll speak more to this. But my my one quote I put was, uh, if actors were never required to say lines, Michael Perret would have been one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, because I just think, and I, we'll talk about his acting, I'm sure. But I, I do just think he just he does look so badass this movie. Like yeah. he just films so well. He's so handsome. The camera loves him. He smolders really well. Uh, yeah, if you're just going for a pure visual aesthetic, you, you really can't beat him here. Well, I, I have to say, really, too, um, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but I almost think if Michael Paré was like a 23-year-old actor now, he would almost be more suited to these times than then. Because like back then, you know, with the very few exceptions of somebody like a Walter Hill or something, most directors didn't want this type of guy as like the lead back then. Like if you look mm-hmm. back, like you, like look how quirky leading men could could be in the eighties, Trev. I mean, you just literally had everybody from like, you know, a, headlining big films back then, from Richard Dreyfuss to Michael J. Fox to Ralph Macchio. Like there really wasn't like that archetype. And then like in recent years, let's say like the last twelve fifteen years, they've been importing all these British and Australian actors, like you know, like Chris Hemsworth and so forth, because they have that physicality that a lot of American actors don't have. And it's like, in a yeah. weird way, I could almost see Michael Pyre having a bigger career now than he did even then. Yeah, I guess we can talk about it, because you know, we're not into the action yet. But I know, like, so... You know, in, in retrospect, this movie didn't perform. Especially uh, the, well, the co-writer, Larry Gross... He's really blamed the failure of the movie on Michael Perret, and it's kind of known that Perret and Walter Hill didn't necessarily get along. And 
they were kind of very vocal where they say that they felt like they picked the wrong leading man. And I know that they're for, for a hot second, I think they had Eric Roberts cast in the part and he dropped out. And then they were also talking to Tom Cruise and I don't know, like watching it now, I, I, I'm going to guess you're going to agree, Goat. Michael Prey does give a very stiff wooden performance in this, but it ultimately so works for the tone of the film. Yeah. And I just think, like, I love Tom Cruise, but I was kind of thinking, like, he definitely would been totally wrong for this. I think he'd be too charismatic. I don't think this is... I, I just think there's something about how kind of... And I mean this in a good way. How wooden and how kind of dead-eyed Tom Cody is, it totally works in this world. Well, I mean, nothing about our boy Tom, because we know at the the ripe old age of 53, he's jumping across buildings and shattering ankles. But, like, Tom Cruise did not have the physicality at this point in time, I don't believe. You know what I mean? Like, I would think you would even argue, I mean, it doesn't really matter with Top Gun, because it's, you know, he's flying a plane. But, I mean, like, Tom Cruise, you know, until the kind of the rules of cinema were rewritten a little bit in the early 90s, where they started making like leading action men a little more human like i just don't think tom would have played this at all i mean he would he would be probably about the same height as amy madigan here and it just the the contrast between tom and the other characters i don't think would have worked you know like that oh the acting talent yeah tom would have tore up the role and had charisma out the ass but the physicality which is like you know like i i I always seen michael Perez like being perfect in this movie because I didn't look at it so much like, oh, he's doing a shitty leading man job. I looked at it more as like he's acting the way he's being directed. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting because there's such a wide range of performances here. So I would say, like, in my mind, I feel like Michael Perret and Rick Moranis are both giving performances that would maybe typically generally be considered bad, right? Not great performances. Then I think Amy Madigan's giving a legit, really good performance. And I think so is Diane Lane. Then you have Willem Dafoe who's doing this, like, over the top thing right so it's all across the board and every one of them works and it all works together and that is that's a testament to what walter hill's doing it's a testament to just how bizarre the tone of the film is so it like it it can work with all these different kinds of performances and it's what makes it ultimately more interesting because if everybody was just doing the same thing the movie would be a little flat it wouldn't be as compelling well like for people not following along on the dvd or whatever you know, for anybody to say Michael Paré is kind of like, oh, he's kind of flat, he's kind of wooden. The Literally, the plot of this movie is Diane Lane is a singer. She gets kidnapped by a motorcycle game, uh, you know, run by Willem Dafoe. And as far as I know, Trev, like, pretty much his only motivation for kidnapping this famous singer was pretty much just to tie her up and rape her as much as he wanted to. I mean, am, am I... <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, no, that's the yeah. depth of the plot, right? Mm-hmm. So I, like... With that kind of because even when I was watching it the other night, Trev, you know, this is the first time I sat down and from beginning to end, uh, you know, because even when I picked up this Blu-ray a couple years ago, I think I kind of skimmed it and watched some scenes and I watched the documentary. I know, but I don't think I really had sat down and watched this movie beginning to end in about fifteen years. And then like, yeah, I was like, oh, this movie's kind of like empty, but it's empty on purpose because it's it's intentionally style uh, over substance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. One of the ways it's like Mad Max Fury Road. Exactly. A very simplistic chase narrative, heavy on style. Yeah. Like, I, I think he would... a stoic, leading man of, of a few words. I actually think Tom Cody might even work more as a character if he had less dialogue. Mm-hmm. Right? I think you could, you could like, even rewrite the script a little bit to have him be more like Mad Max and say even less. Here's another great stylistic choice when he's looking at the photograph. 
You know, the photo looks like it's like from the twenties. <laughs> yeah, but it, and then it kind of dissolves into this black and white performance of her singing. Mm-hmm. Which, like, when you're when you're talking about like you know like like you know we're older than like everybody because 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 you know like like most uh you know whatever uh, uh, uh men um like i like you know in being a bit younger than diane lane like i first noticed her in um in the judge dread movie and i thought she was like wow like who is she she's this amazing movie star like perfect woman and it's like it's so weird like like when you go back and you watch some of her early stuff like this and like you in like definitely her role in the outsiders like she was always portrayed as like the the super like beautiful girl but it's like now when you look at like 18 year old diane lane you're like shit i'm not old enough to be her father (laughs) and so like so like yeah when i watch her in this like aside from the parts where she's on stage and she's really commanding authority and very womanly like the rest of the time i'm just like oh she's like her character she's just like a little girl you know what i mean well, the reason I know I'm older than everyone in this film is because while well, Hill had a, kind of a rule about this film where he decided that there will be no one in this town who's under uh, or no, sorry, no one who's over 30. Like everybody yeah. in this movie and everyone exists in this in this world is under 30 to kind of give it this like, again, this this youth based, you know, vibe. And, and it, it works because it's the strange feeling of where are the older authority figures? Right. Where's the mayor of this town or something? Or where's yeah. the police chief? You know, everyone's everyone's young. Um, but Diane Lane, of course, is the is the youngest. I, I'm I'm very struck in this film by I feel like young Diane Lane. I never realized because I wasn't used to seeing her this young. Uh, I feel like young Diane Lane looks like an uh, Conan O'Brien if they made it of Liv Tyler and Mila Jovovich. I could see that. I could see that. And uh, another thing too is like that little scar she has on her cheek. You notice it in the movies where she's young, but I don't think I quite noticed that in like her more recent stuff. But. Yeah. It's just I, I don't know. I I still even to this day I still think she's underrated. Um, I mean she's yeah. she's had a really big career, but it's like whenever I watch you know, the DCU and I see her with a terrible wig on, <laughs> supposed to be Ma Kent, I gotta I gotta roll my eyes because I feel like even though she's great in the role and everything, because she's a great actress, like I just feel like. I kind of feel like she should, even at this time, you know, I think she's in her late 50s. I think she still has what it takes to command a, a lead in a film, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of our main cast is together in this scene. Um, so my friend who I showed this to the other night, she asked a great question, Goat, that I'm going to pose to you. Um, she asked, and it's a two-part question. She asked, who was the most famous person in this cast when the movie was made? And who would you say is the most famous now? And my, my answer for both was Rick Moranis. I said, I, I'm, I would think Rick oh. Moranis is the most famous of the time, and I would say he still is. Well, I'm, well no, Willem Dafoe is now, I guess. But At the, at the time, I think you're right, because I think, I think he had already made Strange Brew, right? Yeah, and SCTV, right? So yeah. I think he would be the one who is known. So, but now, would you say it's him or Willem Dafoe? Who's like more famous? Oh, to, now today it's got to be Willem Dafoe. The guy's done like over two hundred roles. But you, but you know, yeah. like you know what? I'm young enough to remember though, and I guess it was more of the music than even the movie itself. But Eddie and the Cruisers was white hot. And oh I, yeah, and yeah. that's another reason why I, I kind of can't believe this movie didn't do better than it did. But one thing I think we should mention. You know, since we're going to sit here and talk about how this movie wasn't a success because it was supposed to have sequels and all that and it didn't, is this uh, was kind of as it always happens. And, you know, we've talked about in the past, Trev, this was this movie was kind of, you know, 
It's kind of an unusual film, probably going to be hard to sell, so you need the studio to be 100% behind it, and it was the victim of, uh, you know, in between the time they made it and when the, it was released uh, roughly about a year after that, uh, there was a studio changeover, so yep, there's been a, yeah, a lot of comments that it didn't really get the marketing support, and there's also some comments that it was starting to do well, but it just, you know, was kind of just yanked out of theaters, which I, like, I know the movie business has changed quite a bit, but, like, I'm always kind of... I take those claims dubiously, Trev, when people claim a movie was making so much money and it was pulled out of theaters. Like, I almost feel like back then, theater owners would not allow that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it it didn't completely... It wasn't like the biggest complete disaster. It was just one of those movies that it finally broke even on video type things. Like, it wasn't... You know. Yeah, you always had the you always had the nice like uh, relief of video back then, yeah. and this of course feels like something that probably did get rented a lot. Um, but I am like I'm I get their logic of thinking this movie was going to be huge. You know, in '84, this is the era of MTV, and to mm-hmm. you know get this very young, attractive cast and and sell a film as a rock and roll fable. Um, you know, and kind of, and like, and that neon look, and like you said, coming off of Blade Runner, this movie does have a very Blade Runner-ish look to it yeah. uh, in terms of visuals. And then just the, you know, the hubris of coming off of 48 hours and people liking the Warriors. I, I would have, I would have put money into this. I would have thought it was a fairly safe bet, you know. And, and Walter Hill is even quick to point out, it's like, yeah, it, it was, you know, it was, it was a $15 million film, which was, you know, which was a good good size, but it, that wasn't even considered a huge movie back then. I think there were some movies that were up in the thirty and forty million dollars of budget back then. And this was a time where you know a movie like this, a movie this strange, could be made by studio and be a hit. And I don't know, that's not necessarily true today, you know, because this doesn't fit. This doesn't tick all the boxes of just generic franchise film number one. You know, even though this was meant to kick off a trilogy, which I guess we can talk about it a little later but you know uh, what's funny though yeah. Trevor is like because I, I kind of felt the same way too when I watched this the other night when I said like it, it was exactly the movie I remember but also it was different and I don't want to scare people who maybe have ever listened to this and for some reason haven't seen the movie yet. I don't want to scare them off of saying this is too weird of a movie because it's really not oh no no because it's so basic of kind of like an action thing the only thing that you really have that's different compared to a, a, a more like exploitational action picture of the time is um it's really just the production sign design and a musical number at the beginning and in the and when i say musical number i mean diane lane and her band performing on stage um other than those elements like if they just would have you know for whatever reason decided like they only had the budget to set this in modern day 1980s los angeles or new york they probably could have made this movie for a third of the budget and with the elements and action and whatever it probably would have turned a way better profit you know what i mean yeah and walter hill is is has said like every movie he's made is a western at, at yeah. its core right and that's definitely true of this you know it, it, like you said and this again to go back to my mad max analogy it's a very simplistic action movie narrative and like you said it's just what makes it interesting is the style of it the visuals and this is going to sound like a very pretentious thing to say but going back to you not wanting to scare people off this is the kind of movie that I would point anyone who just loves cinema to and say, if you like cinema, then everything Walter Hill is doing here in terms of this bizarre fantasy world and setting this really kind of simplistic stock story in it, you're going to love it. Like, I think that's, it's, that's what makes it compelling and interesting. Yeah. There's, there's, um, a lot that's been made of like visually, 
movies that this inspired. And I kind of I kind of would agree with it a little bit, but one of the movies that I've seen it supposedly inspire visually at least was RoboCop. I can see that with the with mm-hmm. the, the, the the degrading inner city and all that. Yeah, and even just you know, and then like some of that the the this the the looks of the factories and even some of like the neon lighting and stuff like that. By the way, this club looks pretty cool. I would hang out at this club. But yeah, like we got to talk about this dancing girl, right on the the bar. Like she commands yeah. like so much performance and authority yeah. here. I looked like, her up. I think she was like some like kind of well known Russian dancer. Yeah, she's really good, and I mean. Her, her, the way she moves and her body type, like, I figured she was a uh, professional dancer. So, no, okay, like, I think this is the scene where we first kind of realize there's something a little bit off about Willem Dafoe <laughs> based on his wardrobe choice here. You don't think he's just going, like, fishing later? Or? Yeah, so he's he's basically wearing a pleather, like, pair of, what do you call those, wading pants, suspenders? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, like... And I gotta say, I kind of made a booby, a booby, a boo boo recently. Trev is uh, I had the chance to uh, watch the movie The Loveless with Willem Dafoe, and it was like I passed it up. I think it went off streaming. I like I had like a week to watch it, and I missed it. And I feel bad about that because I feel like, you know, like they, like I like I've been wanting to see that movie forever because I always like kind of heard it kind of tied into you know he was playing a similar biker character yeah and that's i mean that's basically the film that got him this right wasn't yeah. Catherine bigelow is somehow connected to someone on this movie and he was recommended off of that yeah but uh yeah and like i want to say the maybe the previous year if i remember in the the release years correctly or, or somewhere around this time really close to this time he had also played the villain in to live and die in la which is which is actually my favorite defoe character of all time like i think he took the quirkiness, the quirky villain, to a really good extreme in that film. So, so Travis, you know, another thing, you know, uh, this movie supposedly budget fourteen and a half million, made a little over eight million at the box office. So, you know, not what they're expecting, but it had stiff competition though. Like again, because the studio changeover, not much promotion. Supposedly, they kind of don't you feel like this was kind of a a dumb idea that they opened this movie the same weekend as Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yeah, it's not the, that's not the smartest move, that's for sure, especially coming off of how hot Star Trek Two was, you know? Right. And that being, like, a, the direct sequel at the return of this beloved character, yeah. Yeah. It just, especially if you're, if you're going for, like, you know, and, and obviously Star Trek is very multi-generational, but at that time, you know, in, in shit, what was it, probably the previous five years, they had released, this was the third Star Trek movie coming out, so it had called quite a, a bit of a young audience as well they kind of you know they scooped up the older fans that remember the 60s show and then they you know so like yeah i feel like if you're going for the youth market don't don't bring it out against anything that also competes for younger people's attention well that's important to point out too when you say going for the youth market because uh oh ed bigley jr we should probably talk about that but really quickly yeah. um you know, it's it, like one of the things that also this film is known for is Walter Hill made this decision for it to not be very violent, right? To have no blood, to have nobody actually be murdered on screen and aim for a PG, which is yeah. quite the difference from 48 Hours uh, or The Warriors. And so you, he was kind of making a concerted effort to aim for like a younger audience, which is also then again, you're kind of cannibalizing the Star Trek audience. You know, you're yeah. not you're not counter programming Star Trek anymore. You're aiming for the family just like that one is. Exactly. 
And it's like, because, um, yeah, the script was originally way more violent. And, like, one of the changes was originally, you know, how Tom Cody shows up to town with his bag of suit, you know, suitcase and his big bag. Originally, he was supposed to show up with all these guns. Like, he was already a badass guy. But they were like, no, that would paint him as too violent. So that's why they had that scene where he goes to the mechanic and he buys the the weapons. Yeah, it vaguely surprised me when he popped out of the shadows there as a completely, almost like a suit-faced, uh, dude, like, almost unrecognizable bum. So I was trying to place that, like, was he, like, known enough at this time to be, like, a cool cameo? Or was that just, like, uh, he was a working actor and he was a fun guy to have in that role? I, I couldn't figure that either because I would have thought he would have, and I could be wrong, he might have come out either later this year or the next year. But I would have thought he would already been, like, working and busy uh, with, uh, was he on Sane Elsewhere around this time? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what the, I mean, I'm, I, I'm trying to timeline my I mean, he definitely he hadn't made the best horror movie right yet, but like uh, later, as he would with Transylvania Six Five Thousand. Six Five Thousand, yeah, another yeah. film we should do someday. Yeah, I got a copy of it. I'm down. Mm-hmm. The old Bakester. We should take this a second too, because we we kind of completely blew over it. But uh, when Amy Madigan uh, showed up. And we didn't even talk about our boy, Bill Paxson, with the best pompadour of all time, playing the bartender. But, um, yeah, like, so anyway, Tom Cody has this sidekick who... um oh boy. Yeah, so Tom Cody originally was supposed to be, you know, kind of how he really is in the in the movie. Um, you know, a guy in his late 20s where, the, the, you know, here it's younger because Michael Paré was only 23 when they made the film. And... um but the original concept for his sidekick, uh, I want to say, what was the guy's name? Camacho, something like that. Yeah, and it was it was, it was supposed to be a um, an older, I want to say, like maybe even in his forties, overweight. Um, well, it was written to be an overweight uh, Latino man. Uh, they were in negotiations though with Edward James Olmos when uh, Amy Madigan came in, and she was basically coming in to read for the part of Tom Cody's sister. But her kind of having the moxie that she did, she's like, I don't want to do that. Like, this is such a cool movie. Like, let me let me play Camacho, you know? And uh, she came in and kind of, like, you know, did the swagger and whatever. And, like, to his credit, you know what I mean? Like, it kind of surprised me that this is the way it happened. Just, like, on the spot, she won Walter Hill over. And they kind of had to break off negotiations or talks with uh, Edward James almost. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I think it was Larry Gross who made a great point on the documentary I watched about the film where he was talking about that, about how, you know, obviously Walter Hill does deserve a lot of credit for for just rolling with that and seeing the potential once she raised raised that point in the audition. But they did point out that Walter Hill already had um, experience with that, knowing that can work in terms of the Ripley casting, you know, of, of Ripley being written as a man in the script and casting Sigourney Weaver. So he knew that that kind of change could be beneficial with the right performer yeah and i mean she she definitely brought it but i gotta say like i think i think her being in the role compared to uh, another man kind of um i think that brought out the contrast between her and tom cody whereas i think if you would have had somebody like a almost in there there almost would have been a same kind of physicality and like you know whereas like what i i love the scenes with her with uh amy madigan and michael paré because it's it's very clear who's batman and who's robin you know what i'm saying yeah well as i as again as my uh, my friend pointed out there's a scene later with tom cody um knocking diane lane out 
<laughs> and uh, right. McCoy is there. And my friend yeah. is like, if this was two men in the scene, this would have a completely different vibe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, but, I think uh, Amy Madigan is like definitely maybe like yeah she's she's one of the stronger performances in this for sure and I I love her in this. And it's kind of funny too because it's it, it's not only is she one of the best ones but it kind of almost like you almost couldn't imagine the movie without her in it because I feel like she is the one out of all the performance she is the one that almost sells like her kind of like. You know, her constant kind of, uh, you know, chain smoke, you know, those weird little cigars, cigarillos or whatever it is she smokes and her and her hat and the way she talks. Like, I feel like her kind of like tough Chicago type character is kind of what almost sells this more as like an old timey noir than anything else. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. And she also like her existence where she says, you know, I'm just out of the army. And she talks about how she was like in the auto pool and she's got still the mechanic outfit on. It's another thing that kind of sets the film in a strange time where you're just like, wait, what? When is this coming out of like, which is this coming out of like a world war? Like what's going on here? You know, like yeah. the fact that she's dressed like that. And Tom Cody says he's an ex-soldier too. And we see him undress. He's dressed like the old forties gangster with the suspenders. Um, but so I mentioned earlier that like, you know, none of the main characters in this are meant to are, are uh, over 30. The one who like kind of boggles my mind on that is I guess like Lee Ving is just one of those guys who was probably born looking old, huh? Oh yeah, leaving. So we should, uh, we should, Ed, yeah, we we got to talk about leaving. Uh, yeah, lead singer of the the very legendary band Fear, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and one of their most infamous things is uh, uh, John Belushi was a big fan, and he got Lauren Michaels to book them as a musical guest, and they kind of like destroyed the place, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, swore, destroyed the place. Got the they brought a bunch of punk uh, like punkers with them to be the audience, and they just kind of went crazy. And uh, I think to this day they. Uh, that performance is like cut out of reruns and official yeah. releases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but of course, a lot of movie fans will know him as Mr. Body in Clue and, uh, and the, the club owner in Flashdance. But Clue is definitely what I always think of for him. Yeah. I, I, uh, I looked up our boy, Bagley Jr. He was, a, he was nothing but a bit player at the time. I would say yeah. probably uh, his biggest role that I could tell up until this point, he'd been working for a long time in tiny bit roles, like a good 10 years, but um, probably his biggest role before this was in Paul Schrader's Cat People. He played one of the, um, you know, the guys who worked at the zoo, but even that was a very small supporting role. So I think he legit was just a guy who auditioned to be a, 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 a bum who looked like he just climbed out of a chimney. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, so we, when we're talking about uh, Defoe's, um, you know his rubber suspenders or whatever he kind of comes in and licks the face of a tied down diane lane and all that kind of stuff so i mean again i i I, you know i gotta kind of commend walter hill to where like those those kind of things would mean a lot they'd be way more insidious if this was a a much harder edge picture you know what i mean yeah there's even a like i know this sounds strange because obviously it's it's you know not great it's still he's the bad guy <laughs> but there's a moment when he's talking to her and he says all you got to do is like you know fall in love with me for like a week and then you can go and it, uh, that'll be it and it's like you kind of believe him right yeah. like there's even this like element of like i think he's telling the truth not that i'm not that i'm supporting what he's doing but as you said i think it's trying not to make it as gross as it could be or as it probably really is you know yeah which I guess we should take a second to mention too a little bit of uh, 
you know, if you look at some of the roles that pretty much uh, Rick Moranis, with, with the exception of obviously his SCTV stuff and, you know, Strange Brew or whatever, where he's really going over the top. A lot of the support, you know, when Rick Moranis was in that phase, kind of pre-Ghostbusters like this, and you look at something like The Wildlife with uh, Chris Penn and Eric Stoltz, he kind of was always playing these little sleazy weasels because in the wildlife mm-hmm. he's you know he's he's kind of a dubious music manager here who's also having a relationship with the diane lane and you kind of get the impression that he's just taking advantage of her here and using her like he's not truly in love with her or anything and uh yeah he's he kind of plays a nerdy uh sh- uh what do you call it like a in wildlife he works at a shopping mall he's like the manager and he kind of was like you know, he, he kind of seems like one of those guys is mid to late 20s who's just trying to get all the 18-year-old, 19-year-old girls that work for him, you know, into bed type thing. So, like, I think I think Ghostbusters totally uh, busted Moranis out of the mold that he was kind of a little bit getting typecast in in the early 80s. Well, I, th- I was just I, w- I was just going to say the same thing, but it framed it a different way to where I'd say, like, never before has, or, you know, it's one of the prime examples of one role completely rewriting a person's compl- like real life persona, you know, because yeah. I think Lewis Tully made everyone see Rick Brannis as only the lovable nerd. And then you see him in things like Little Shop of Horrors and, of course, yeah. Tanya Shrunk, the kids franchise. And then people just assume that that's where Rick Brannis is. Yeah. But to, what, to the point you're making, I'm, you might have heard this, too. I guess him and Michael Prey did not get along making no. this. And Michael Prey talked about how, like. Rick Manis was a very like he was talking about like he's one of those like very sarcastic cutting comedians like always making fun of him on set and that's not the image of Rick Manis we have nowadays right that he would come on set and just kind of no. be really meet someone <laughs> but maybe that's maybe that's who he was early, younger and just realized that oh, I'm gonna lean into this Disney thing and become more yeah. hey I'm lovable likable Rick Manis you know well that's definitely where the money is and, I, and when Michael Perry kind of related that story on the documentary i i totally knew exactly what he was talking about is those type of guys and and the one thing i do love about michael perry i almost think michael perry is like more interesting in an interview in real life than he is like he comes off as even more mythic like bigger and mythic in real life than he does like even on screen back then but of course then again he's like a 60 year old man now and he was like 23 when he made this and eddie and the cruisers but like yeah i could totally see what he was saying like Moranis kind of like he sees his big tall good looking guy come in and like you know rick Moranis can't compete with that on any level so he's going to use his you know his barbed tongue to try and take this guy down a notch and you know I, i've been around people like that before especially people who kind of you know not obviously not professional comedians but people who who fancy themselves as being you know funny or whatever and that is hard to be around and it's just after a while you just want to slap the guy you know what i mean yeah <laughs> But I mean, also to Moranis's credit, he might have also just understood that that kind of tension would be good for the film because yeah. the, they didn't like each other on set, and it comes across on screen, and, and it works for the relationship. I mean, you don't you you believe these guys don't like each other, as apparently they did not. Yeah. Now, now get into it because kind of like the love triangle in this, which isn't really much of a love love triangle, but it's you know it's supposed to be a barrier between Tom Cody because without Rick Moranis. And uh, Diane Lane's characters being in a romantic relationship at this time, you know, like there would be no barrier. It'd just be like Tom Cody walks into town, and they're back together, you know. So, mm-hmm. like, I think if anything, that's almost like a little bit of a weak spot because, like, I don't really feel any real. I don't. I don't know. I don't feel the chemistry. You know, like like people criticize Perry and stuff in this movie, but I would almost say like Rick Moranis should have acted a little more. Like, I mean. 
you know, like he was in a relationship with Diane Lane. You know what I mean? Well, that's what I mean. Earlier, I mentioned like what I think the gam- like the the range and the gamut of the performances is, and I said that you know the two performances you could point at as being on a technical, just basic levels, being maybe bad are Perea and Moranis. And the, the reason yeah. I say Moranis is again, I like everybody in this, but I think he's trying so hard to be kind of a tough guy, right? And because yeah. it's Brannis, it comes across really kind of corny. Now, why I think it works is you can just buy that as the character, too. You can buy it as Billy Fish putting on a whole act, but it's not very convincing. The one thing I'll say to this, and this, again, speaks to me like something maybe Walter Hill does on a nice, subtle level. Um, so Deborah Van Valkenburg's character in The Warriors, I think, is like kind of, um, I don't want to say like a super progressive character, but this, like, when there's that moment where she kind of admits that she's like, you know, what's the problem? Like, yeah, I, I like to sleep around on the weekends, and I look around and see these older women that are married and have babies, and I, I just want to have some fun while I can. And that was definitely not an attitude you saw a lot of, like, female characters having in cinema around that time. And then I think there's something kind of refreshing about Diane Lane's character in this, where she just, when she talks to Cody about why she's Moranis, she basically just says, like, what do you want? Like, he's he's good for my career, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. I, I like that they have that he has those kind of realistic motivations and moments with his characters and doesn't try to sell, like, oh, no, Moranis is actually, you don't know the real him. There's something, like, he's just, he's got a great heart. She's like, no, 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 I, I, I get it. Like, I'm with him because he's going to do good things for me. Yeah. It's, it's almost like he's a little bit of a caretaker for, you know, obviously her career, but then also her. And like mm-hmm. you, you don't know how much uh, emotional damage you know she suffered when Tom Cody split town to go to the army or whatever he you know, and, and all that's yeah. just played I think even really smartly, kind of vaguely the backstory. You're kind of, you're kind of feeling it out as you go along. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, like I just like something like Miranda's lay a kiss on her, put your arm around her, something like. <laughs> if the dialogue didn't spell it out, I never would have thought those two characters had any sort of. Uh, romantic entanglement you know what i mean i do also like too and a nice touch is once they started once they changed um you know this part for amy madigan and made it into mccoy that they're you know there's like some jokes about it throughout but there's never any like real thought of mccoy and cody as an item no and in fact i like that throughout the entire movie it really does seem like mccoy is kind of rooting for cody to get back with uh with ellen and yeah. it's kind of like needling Moranis about it all the way through, you know, and it's kind of, it seems like she's pushing for that. So I, I like that, that they just remain friends and kind of two ex-soldiers that work well together. So so here's another striking, uh, you know, stylistically sequence in one yeah. of Walter Hill's favorite. It's uh, they go to another, again, drawing similarities to the Warriors. They have to make their way through different parts of town. You know, at this point, they're back on foot again. And we kind of see them enter, entering another part of town, and then we also get intercut with a, um, like, basically, like, literally a music video of Diane Lane's character um, yeah. that's, like, actually shot on video. So when you watch it on a big screen, it, it's it's actually very high-quality video, but it stands out that it's different from the rest of the movie, and you're kind of yeah. like, oh, why are we cutting back between film and video? And then you see as they get on the street that it's it's playing on a TV in a window. I thought that was, like, a really kind of smart thing there. This also looks like the coolest area of this city, this, this yeah. part of town. Yeah. This is like the New Orleans Blade Runner red light mm-hmm. district. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love it because that's the thing. Like, here you have not only that like 50s vibe, but also, as you just said, this kind of then you have like the 50s and 70s merging here because you got some kind of like 70s pimp uh, kind of outfits going. And, and then you said there's a definite like New Orleans vibe. Yeah, this, this is awesome. I love this. And this outdoor bar here. This is all really cool. Yeah. And, like, I, I think, you know, stuff in, like, uh, the production designer, 
Again, another one of my favorite 80s uh, people here, E.G. Daly, popping in. Yeah. But, like, yeah, like, I, I think a lot of the um, the expense was just literally creating this world with the set. So they did film some of the, um, the anytime you see, like, a legit working subway, I believe that was yeah. in Chicago, but in yep. a couple little other areas. But for the most part, it was shot on the back lot of Universal. And in order to be able to shoot, uh, you know, because they weren't going to be able to shoot, like, all night, blowing all this shit up, shotguns, whatever... They had to actually shoot this movie during the day, and the way they did that was they they put a giant tarp over like two city blocks of the back lot, which was amazing. But it also created a lot of problems, uh, namely mm-hmm. um, besides just being really dangerous. Whenever the wind would pick up, uh, there a lot of pigeons would get trapped in the tarp on top of the tarp. So uh, sometimes during takes, yeah, uh, pigeons. No, yeah, ahead, so like not only the pigeons, but then like the wind too. And like the tarp would be so loud as they were recording dialogue. Yeah, they would go back and ADR a lot of this. Yeah, yeah, and that was another thing. And you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but at least the documentary that I watched, because I know there's two. Uh, the disc I had only had the first one that came out. But Walter Hill is very complimentary to Michael Pare. But uh, Michael Pare talks about, um, you know, he, like he could tell Walter Hill didn't like him because you know he was. A lot of the stuff he was doing in this movie, he had no idea how to do, and he felt like he was just kind mm-hmm. of thrown into a lot of things. So he's constantly asking Walter Hill questions, and Walter Hill kind of wanted just like a Clint Eastwood type that would kind of just stand there and not say anything and just do like, okay, walk in the shot, do this, go to, you know, like he didn't want to. Walter Hill didn't want a lot of discussion about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to the point in that opening part, uh, that where they where uh, Tom Cody fights the gang in the coffee shop. He like the stunt guy was like, "Yeah, just pick up the uh, coat rack and hit the guy in the face." And he like legitimately did. He just was like, "Okay, just he just hit the guy in the face." He never done a, f- a fight scene before. He didn't realize like, "Okay, like I wasn't really supposed to hit him straight in the face because it almost knocked the guy out." You know what I mean? But uh, it was a really wild time. We got to talk about this this soul group here. This is the all star cast of uh, actors, yeah. you know for sure. So in the front there, kind of the lead man is ironically kind of the least famous guy, even though he is famous, Stoney Jackson, who's amazing dancer, been in videos, everything. He also would make a lot of movie appearances. He's He plays a really good role in another Walter Hill movie I just watched a week ago, Trev Trespass. Um, kind of interesting little movie. But um, the rest of it is really all-star cast because you got Michael T. Williamson, who would later get famous mm-hmm. with as a, uh, Bubba from uh, um, Forrest Gump. You got Robert Townsend. This was years before Hollywood Shuffle even came out, Robert Townsend. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, last not, but not least, you have Grandel Bush, who a lot of, I mean, he's in, another guy that's been in a ton of stuff, but I think a lot of people remember him from Die Hard, his role as the, uh, I think it was the FBI agent. He was riding around the helicopter with uh, Robert yeah. Davi. Yeah. Agent I always Johnson. loved him. Yeah, Agent Johnson. <laughs> he's one of those guys, if you're, if you're like, a, if you watch a lot of like late 80s, early 90s, you just know his face. Yeah. Um, I believe he plays two different characters in uh, Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> he's, in, he's in both of those films, but as two different detectives. Uh, yeah. He's just, yeah, he was just, he was just popping up and everything. He's in the third Exorcist movie. Um, Demolition wanna, Man, briefly, yeah. Yeah, I want to say, if I remember right, they gave him like a funky haircut, and uh, he, I, th- I believe he was the boxer guy in the Street Fighter movie, but don't quote me. Yeah, he's, yeah, no, you're right, he's Balrog. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it's kind of interesting, because didn't Robert Townsend make that movie, The Five Heartbeats, later on? Oh, was that him? I thought that was directed by him, yeah. Yeah, you might be right, yeah. 
So let's talk about old Tommy Pickles here, uh, E.G. Daly. Um, oh, yeah. I love her. What do you, I love E.G. Daly, too. He's such a, such a cutie. But uh, what do you think of, like, the addition of her character this movie? Isn't it just strange? Like, right? It's just, like, it's a strange time in the film to add another, like, character to their group. And I also know that I, I've seen E.G. Daly talk about how she ultimately almost didn't want to take this role because it was very underwritten. She thought the movie was so cool and wanted to be in it. Yeah. But I think she was more interested in like the Ellen Aim role, and especially since she was a singer, she's like, "Why can't I play that part?" And the way that Walter Hill eventually, the the reason she agreed is Walter Hill was like, "Okay, well, we'll write a scene for you then." That, and then so we, we're seeing that scene now, and I'm just thinking, well, geez, if that scene was added late in the fact, if that scene wasn't there initially, then really, what is the point of this character? Why do you suddenly have this other girl join this this like motley crew? It's it's very strange, but I don't know. Yeah. I guess it's just. The kind of thing you you do with these films is you want the. I get it. It's cool that they meet up with this other band, but I don't really understand her character. And later, she's just like living with Ellen suddenly in the third <laughs> act. <laughs> she's like a fan following her. Yeah. Well, I, I think yeah. I think really what it was going for, Trev, because I kind of had the thing. I was like, oh, cool, EJ Daly's in this, and then like when they kind of like the soul group, they kind of band together with them. I'm like. Like what? Like what? Like what? Why is everybody kind of together? But it, I think it was, they were just trying to do that thing of like in the they were kind of like following the template of the warriors. Whereas they go along, mm-hmm. they lose some members, they pick some. Members. Whereas like this one, you can't really lose any members because everybody's integral to the plot. But you know, they kind of pick people up, like how in the warriors, they picked up uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg. But yeah, our boy Robert Townsend uh, uh, co-written and directed and co-starred in the the Five Heartbeats. So yeah. Oh, by the way, to get to back to another one of my Fury Road comparisons, um, one of the things people love to talk about, the the strange kind of unique um, structure of Fury Road is that, you know, the, the movie starts with Furiosa fleeing from this, this you know, um, Morton Joe's, uh, you know, headquarters. And then halfway through the film, they decide, well, where are we going to go? Let's just turn around and go back. So it's literally a movie where half the movie is heading one direction and then the next half is, okay, let's just go back the way we came. And that's what this movie does. They go and rescue Alan Aim and then they turn around and now we're following them taking a different path but heading back in the same direction. So again, just these little things to me line up to where I think these two films share a lot of similarities. George Miller was sitting there eating his Vegemite sandwich, writing the script for, uh, <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, yeah, what was it, Mad Max, The Road Warrior, and he was like, you know, this is pretty good, The Road Warrior, what I'm writing here, but if I really had the budget, I would do something much bigger, like Streets of Fire, and, uh, you know, <laughs> 30 years later, he got to do it. Imagine if Rick Moranis had played a Morton Joe. Oh, that would have been great. I'm kind of wondering why he didn't, in all honesty. <laughs> But at least at least they got that one guy to come back from uh, the previous yeah. Mad Max movie. He was great. Yeah, yeah. Which we was, we lost last year, I believe he passed away. Yeah, yeah, he did. It was yeah. very sadly. And it's crazy because when you see him in real life, yeah, he pretty much really was a Morton Jones. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> same hairstyle, same. Well, I mean, not exactly. Obviously, the same clothes. He wasn't wearing like lo- loincloths and shit. But he was a pretty flamboyant guy, pretty out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I gotta say, uh, going back to E.G. Daly, I think a lot of people in this day and age know her as uh, one of the voices on Rugrats. But uh, yeah, I, I think the people you, you know, uh, the same vintage as you and me, Trev, will always know her as Dottie, right, from Pee Big Adventure. Yeah. yeah. And then when I got a little bit older, um, I just thought she was amazing in Valley Girl to the point that I, as much as I love Valley Girl and I love the lead actress. I'm always kind of like, I'm like, oh, I wish they would have switched those roles. I wish E.G. Daly was the main role. 
even though she's awesome in the movie, like I just wanted more of her in the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, this we got some racist cops. Another one of these guys. Yeah. He's another one of those actors who I just feel like I saw in a lot of things around this time. He just got one of those faces. Yeah, I didn't look at the crib, but isn't the one cop, but isn't that our, our boy Rick Rosovich that uh, got mopped up by Arnold in The Terminator? And then he was always in other stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, yes, yes. yes, Pretty sure that's him. Yeah. You know, you're right. Yep. He would would always be in movies, like, I think, like, he was in, like, Let's Get Harry and stuff like that. He hung in there for a long time, yeah. But, yeah, he's a pretty buff guy. I think that's why he got a lot of these roles. Oh, yeah, he was also in Top Gun. Also in a movie, I had a little spellbinder with the amazing Kelly Preston. Played a supporting role in that. But yeah. All star cast, even though nobody was a star at the time. <laughs> I'll tell you what, one thing about this, whatever what this world is, this fantastical world that Walter Hill created, every vehicle is extremely flammable. This world. Yeah. One shot. Just gigantic explosion. I'm I'm blanking on uh, the the name of the the exact model of those police cars, but uh, apparently this movie, you know, kind of uh, induces a lot of winces from uh, classic car lovers because they rounded up all these classic uh, 50s cars to, to be the cop cars, and they just literally blew them up. And that was the part that Pare was talking about where they just told him to go out there and shoot the shotgun, and they were going to blow the the cars up in his face, which they did, and then everybody was hiding behind protective uh, uh, plexiglass, and he just stood there and got a face full of glass. Now, you say that classic car lovers like wince and hate this because they're just destroying a bunch of classic stuff, but I, I've, I have it on good record that, that that's why this is Christopher Nolan's favorite film. Really? He's, <laughs> <laughs> he just loves when people destroy priceless old things. He does. He does. And, you know, like when, when uh, I heard them talking about that on a documentary about the cars and, you know, how it was such a shame to destroy them like that, I started thinking of that because, like, you know, it's like it's – I've kind of become, for the first time in my life, more interested in cars now than ever. And uh, one thing I noticed, Trev, is, like, do you notice, like, movies we watched when we were growing up? I would say 80s all the way through, like, the mid-90s before car product placement was a huge thing in movies. They would always use slight, like, like cool cars, but slightly older cars that weren't monetarily worth a whole lot. So they could mm-hmm. smash them up and stuff. So you got to think, like, how many, like, cool classic cars. Because, you know, every year... Every model car becomes, you know, classic car becomes rare and rare on the roads because they die or they rust away, especially cars from back then. Or, you know, but movies were just destroying cars left and right. And, like, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is kind of like a period s piece, but like new movies now, it's like you never see a car more than like two years old in a new movie, I've noticed. It's weird. If you uh, like a couple of moments ago, we saw the Shondells, the band, run across the street with everyone else, and, and Robert Townsend was doing a very over exaggerated, like comedic run. So you can maybe yeah. feel like already Townsend <laughs> is, is figuring out his future persona in this. Say like, oh, yeah. maybe I'm the funny guy. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's interesting too because you got to think like um, people who like we know, like we're talking about our boy Bagley. Like, I always wonder, what was the lifestyle like? This is the only time Diane Lane kisses Moranis. But, like, like yeah. what would your lifestyle be like getting these tiny roles in movies and probably barely eking out a living but doing it year in, year out? Like, it's just amazing to me that anybody hangs in there long enough to get their big break. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like, here's, like, the real subway, so, you know, that's, like, in Chicago. I thought that was great, too, because they talked a lot about, too, like, with the production design, is they really uh, married together a lot of New York and Chicago aesthetics, and, like, I like that, uh, and even the production designers, like, one guy was trying to bring as much in from the 30s and 40s as he could, and here's our boy Pax, and he's back. But uh, I like that because it's, like, it, it leads to... Um, that thing of like you know like it feels familiar to you but nothing is really exactly this way or another you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's like everything's familiar i also, I also just i'm i guess this is true of you too i love this aesthetic of like city like like movies that are taking place in the city but it's clearly a back lot right like a real obvious backlot is just something I love, and you typically only see it in musicals. Like musicals will really yeah. lean into that. Like even to the point of I think like I, I haven't watched In the Heights, but in some of the trailers I get that kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, or like the West Side Story trailer. You know, I think of like uh, the, the kind of you know Little Shop of Horrors to go into another Moranis film. Like cities are always allowed to look fake in those movies, yeah. and I wish more movies would would do that because it does work for that kind of look movies we know a movie's fake when we watch it sometimes you can lead into like the fantasy of it and I, I think that's another thing this movie is like clever to realize like when you when you bill a movie as a rock and roll fable and, and lean into it being fantastical everything can be heightened and and have that kind of look and that goes back to like i was going to mention this earlier when you mentioned the thing about uh raven shattuck which is william defoe's character kidnapping her and it being like a kind of a chaste rapist which i know sounds crazy but that 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 goes back to that that goes back to like the fairy tale vibe of this right like fairy tales that's the kind of thing a villain would do in a fairy tale is kidnap the princess to to make her love him but not push it any further into territory you know right because i mean it's literally to the point where isn't he like when he kidnaps her they're like like i can't remember if it's defoe directly or maybe leaving but one of them like they're literally hoisting her over their shoulder it's like that cartoony you know what i mean yeah but yeah, but like I mean, do you like do you love these kind of like backlot looks looks as well as me? Like, that was that was one thing I was going to bring up to you is I think this is like in all honesty because I'm very nostalgic for backlot pictures as well, Trev. Like even to yeah. the point where like another thing that you would kind of one of the last bastions of, of shooting on a backlot was I would say probably uh, probably late '90s comedies and stuff like like mm. some Chris Rock pictures, something like Half Baked or something clearly has backlot stuff, but like. I think this is one of the best backlot movies, period. Because it it doesn't like it's so fantastical looking that you know it's a backlot, but it doesn't look overly backlotty. Like they did a good job of like they overly dressed everything. Like they built that diner. Like you know, they put a facade on an existing building. Like they did enough and they dirtied it off. Because a lot of times you'll spot a backlot because it's supposed to look like an inner city, but it's kind of too clean. And, like, I thought they did a good job of mixing that. And then, like, with the -the over-the-top production design, like, that one area that was, like, completely all neon and Blade Runner-esque. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's obvious it's a backlot. But it's, to me, I don't know. It's got enough grit to where it's, like, it's not, like, cheap cardboard styrofoam background type feel. It it is more that fantastical, like, you're in a place that doesn't really exist. You know what I mean? Well, it's that, and like, not only does it actually look lived in, but I think it's really cool, too, how it's not very big, right? It looks like yeah. it's just this one little area, right, where from this, you can stand in this one spot and see this diner. You can turn a little bit and see the Richmond, the theater where all, like, the musical parts take place. The police station's right there, too, right? It's like this one block. There's yeah. this one block radius this whole movie takes place in that has its own community, right? When everybody comes out at the end, 
you feel like you understand that this one little block, all these people know each other. That's why they love Ellen Aim because she used to live on this block and now she's the hometown girl done good coming back. Uh, I don't know. It just like it really. I don't know. It's it, it's hard to explain, but it makes the film feel special in a way where it's like, oh, all these people are so connected, even though we only follow like three or four main characters. I agree a thousand percent, and obviously, I'm sure some of that is you know, per, uh, you know, what do you call it, monetary limitations or whatever. But I also think too. I think Walter Hill, uh, you know, because he talks about this movie being so much of a western. Like when you watch western movies, the, like the town is literally like a. A, a town that's like a strip you know what i mean like 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 the pretty much everything happens in that same central area so yeah. it's like you know i kind of think he more than anything leaned into what you're saying about it being it small and being the community and you know and, you know it's it's, it's kind of like that thing too of new york where like you know all the bronx people stick together all the queens people stick together and so forth so you mess with spider-man you mess with all new york that is true. They, 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 like nobody even takes a cell phone out to, like when his mask is off <laughs> when he's on the train. They respect his privacy. I, I, th- I think the guy here who plays like the main cop, who again, like you said, like he's not even like an elder policeman at all either, but he's kind of like the guy who's in charge here, or at least in charge of the little police here. I thought he did a great job too. Um, he kind of reminded me of, um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, our boy played uh, Creighton Duke. <laughs> he kind of kind of reminds me of a prototype. Uh, is it Stephen Williams? Is that the actor's name? Stephen Williams. But this yeah. is this guy. Um, the guy playing the cop here. He's from Poltergeist. Oh yeah, he played one of the researcher guys, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Not the guy who tears his face off in the washroom no. mirror, but or who uh, yeah. or who Stephen Stephen Spielberg's hands tear his face off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, like, this rain is so perfect. It's so perfect movie rain. Yeah. But, yeah, so this is pretty, I guess, uh, story-wise, you know, we kind of had the big chase of our section of our movie, which is probably two-thirds of our running time. And now we're settling into the home stretch, which, like, when I was watching this the other day, like, it's obvious, you know, the the cop comes and warns uh, Tom Cody, like, hey, man, you got to get out of here. You know, Defoe's coming. His boys are going to wreck down this place if, if you're still here or whatever. And, you know, Tom Cody makes the decision, you know, to face, you know, he's not leaving. He's going to face him and all that. And uh, I was like, like, damn, like, like, we're kind of like wrapping up the movie already. Like, because this is a very short movie, too, right? I want to say this is sub 90 minutes. Oh, it's 93 minutes. But I I, I think in a little bit, like, well, we still have a bit of story here where Perret finally sweeps away uh, Diane Lane. So I I shouldn't jump ahead of myself. But I wanted to ask you, Trev, what did you think of the storyline where... Because Rick Moranis was paying uh, Michael Perry ten thousand dollars to rescue uh, Ellen Aim, or Eileen Aim, I should say. Um, it basically Diane Lane hates Michael Perry for taking money to save her. Like, what did you think? Like, because they play that very strongly throughout the. Did you think that was like justified, or I kind of took it as a little bit of a plot contrivance just to justify why them two weren't getting them back together earlier in the movie. It is, but at the same time, it leads to a trope that you see a lot, and I love this trope every time. The, uh, oh, I was getting paid for this, but now I'm not going to take the money. Like yeah. that, that cinematic storytelling narrative shorthand to be like, see, this guy's a better person than we thought he was, right? We sold yeah. him as a mercenary. 
but now he's actually like, no, I don't, I don't need the money. And but, but I also like that he takes the money he owes McCoy. Right? He says like, yeah, this the is the thousand, thousand I promised. Yeah. I promised her, yeah, but I don't need the rest. So I agree with you that it's in there just to create some conflict between the two of them. Um, and especially when you, right here is where you learn how the movie definitely needed to manufacture some uh, conflict because as soon as like it's removed, they just instantly start making out. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. In the, the movie rank. knows that's what we're here. To, <laughs> the movie knows that's what we're here to see. But uh, yeah. but no, I like it just for that reason. Where I always love that moment. Where uh, by the way, how quickly did they have sex? Where they're still soaking wet from the rain here? Uh, or is this? Are they supposed to be that sweaty? Or is it was it that? No, they're yeah, loving? they're 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 wet from the rain. Um, again, it's very chaste. Because I actually went back and rewatched this scene because um, I watched the movie and then I watched the documentary. Michael Perry had some interesting comments about this, where he was saying he felt like he he could have done the scene better, but all he could think about was Diane Lane in front of him yeah, and well, like I do not blame him. But... Yeah, apparently uh, he was in a, a a young marriage that was falling apart, and uh, you know he was starting to develop feelings for Diane Lane, but he knew if he acted on it, he would just be the world's biggest fucking scumbag. So. He showed some restraint, but he could not act, you know, like full concentration. I always thought this was funny because earlier in the movie, uh, Amy Madigan McCoy, she had knocked out uh, Bill Paxton because he was getting too lippy as the bartender, kind of giving her shit for being a tough woman kind of thing. And like here, here he's like he kind of gives her that look, like oh, but it's like, did he forget that she knocked him out, or like what? <laughs> she actually does. She has a line. She has a line of dialogue when Cody sits down, where she says, "I've been here talking things over with Clyde," so you okay. get the sense that there's been she's been trying to patch things over. So I like that little detail. Where again, this this area is so small, you're gonna have to see all these people on every every day if you're gonna stick around. So yeah, uh, those kind of beefs can't last long, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. tequila drinkers. I have to say, I, re- I even like uh, Amy Madigan's kind of like poodle hair in this movie. Like it's the way it's kind of chopped uh, harshly. It's 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 kind of tough. It's kind of cool. Now, uh, if they remade this movie today, who are you casting in the four main principal leads of uh, Tom Cody, McCoy, uh, Raven, and uh, Eileen? Ooh, what a good question. Well, I'm going to give Raven just to Willem Dafoe again. <laughs> I yeah. think he could still pull it off today. Uh, so I'm going to cheat a little bit there and say that's that can that can stick to, to, to Dafoe because uh, I just think there's not too much different there. Um, hmm. Like, d- you know, d- I'm going <laughs> to Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say Dafoe could definitely have the same hairstyle. His hair has not changed yeah. a lick in 30 years. You know, my for whatever reason, like who popped into my head, and you're gonna hate this because I know you, we, you and I disagree about this person. But like in my like uh, uh, an immediate like Tom Cody in my head was was a Channing Tatum. Oh wow! Uh, again, just that kind of physicality, kind of look dumb but handsome. You know, uh, I could see him maybe pulling off something like that. McCoy is a tough one though. Boy, who would be a good McCoy? See, that's the easiest one for me personally. But I don't oh, yeah? want. Yeah, I don't want to tip my cap. I want to see if you come around to my conclusion as well i'll let you just state it on it for a second i'm trying to in my head for like billy fish i'm trying to think of like who would be like the the little comedian right now who could do that yeah. part you know i don't i don't want it to be like pete davidson no thank you oh but, god uh, <laughs> enough pete davidson please <laughs> can you imagine if pete davidson got cast at tom cody oh there he knocked her out yep he kind of had to knock her out though right 
so that she would stay out of the way and not get hurt. Well, again, it, it, by movie logic, there's no reason he couldn't have just told her, hey, we can't leave. I have to do this thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just again, it's all Walter Hill is playing with the old like the old tropes, and the old cliches. But, yeah, imagine that scene if he had knocked her out and then left her in the care of his his other guy friend, you know. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, here we go, another returning Warriors cast yeah. member. Uh, the uh, um, DJ, right? The radio lady? Yeah. Right. yeah. The sixth man who people will most uh, likely remember as chief on uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Oh, yeah, that is her. Damn, I never realized that. I noticed her from the lips, to be honest. Oh, yeah. The shape of her bottom lip. Well, that's all you see in the Warriors, so it's a very memorable part of her face. It is. It is. Yeah, I think it's tough to recast this. Like, I don't think this probably isn't the best choice, but if I really had to go for a Tom Cody type, going with the physicality, I think I would probably, unless I could really come up with, like, a, you know, out of left field thing, I probably would probably would go with Chris Hemsworth for Tom Cody. Um, Eileen, I think, is really tough because there's not that many kind of women that age now that I think could command the uh, the lip-syncing performances. We should, we should say Diane Lane does not do her own singing in this movie. She wanted to, but the producers wanted a different sound. They actually, when you hear her voice in the movie, it's actually, a, did you know this, Trevor? It's a composite of three people's different voices. Yeah, I did see that, yeah. Well, I found that odd. And if you look at the names, it seems like only one of them was actually female, which is weird because when you... Uh, when you hear her, uh, it's, it sounds completely like a female voice. Well, it's funny. Like her, the, the first musical number, the one that opens the film, um, her backing band on screen is all men. But when they come up to the mic and like sing back up, it's clearly like female backup singers. I just thought that was kind of a, a funny little detail. You know, like nobody would like say this because they all think he's just a died in the wool stud. But I th- I think if I actually really had to go... To, to recast the Rick Moranis part, I actually, in my mind, I'm thinking Tom Holland. Oh, I could see that. I could see yeah. I mean, Especially yeah. if you had him playing off a really big beefcake guy, like a Chris Hemsworth type. Like, I could see that working. Man. I I guess it would be lazy, because I'm pretty much just recasting Spider-Man here, but I probably would... <laughs> I probably would go with Zendaya for Eileen because I really thought she gave some great musical performances in the, that movie, The Greatest Showman, with uh, um, Hugh Jackman. Um, man, the Defoe, the Defoe part is really tough. Like, I really wanted like a really slimy guy. Can't think of it. I will tell. I will finally spill the beans. Who I'm going to go with for McCoy, and it's 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 kind of on the nose to more of the modern way. But I'm going to go with our good friend Mela Junovich. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would, I could, yeah. I would like to see her as McCoy. I, I, I mean, heck, if I if I remade this movie, I'd probably just have Mila play Tom Cody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they could definitely do a, a, a what do you call it? Slow motion shot of where she flicks a cigarette butt, and then it makes like you think if I gender thirty minor seconds. Uh, if I gender swap Streets of Fire, am I going to get a bunch of like angry Streets of Fire fandom like making YouTube videos about me? <sighs> Probably not, but 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 I'll be honest. If I got to do the gender swap, I think I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna completely flip flop gender swap. I think I'm gonna go a female Tom Cody and still a female singer. So yeah, oh yeah. But um, so that that so I think my my way would actually piss off people more than your way. But um, I'm just doing all female Streets of Fire to really ruin some childhoods. 
I think this might be the one movie, though, where you could kind of get away with that, in all honesty. Maybe I'm having too much hope in the internet, but I think you could actually get away with doing that. Now, it does, I do wonder why this, like, why wouldn't this community have just ever done this before? Why do they suddenly now mm-hmm. have the guts to all come and armed with guns and take care of this gang? But, well, they had time to think about it, apparently. Gotta love a movie that ends with a good sledgehammer fight, though. Yeah. I, th- I think a good replacement for Defoe, if he didn't already kind of burn up his villain card already, is maybe 10 years ago I would have gone with uh, our boy James Franco. I think he would have uh, given a good yeah. performance if he would have filmed uh, it around the time he real, did like A real-life villain. <laughs> well, he, he could really... I didn't think of it that way, but he could really play up that, uh, <laughs> that tie yeah. to the bed scene, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah. That's works because he played Defoe's. Uh, ben, you are just going that Spider-Man route because he played Defoe's son. Oh yeah, I'm not even thinking. Apparently, my whole uh, understanding of cinema revolves around uh, two different Spider-Man <laughs> incarnations. <laughs> why did I fail to uh, work in uh, Andrew Garfield to this? I don't know why. Andrew Garfield can be the Bill Paxton part. Spe- speaking of which, I forgot to tell you. I think maybe I did. But I forgot to tell you, Trev, but I finally checked out uh, our boy, uh, his movie, uh, Under the Silver Lake with Garfield. Oh, uh, I, st- I, still really, I still really want to see that. You got you to see it because it's like, I don't know what you're going into thinking, but but I was coming off just watching the other, the director's other two movies previously. And this is like, he's he's going into new ground here. It's, yeah. uh, I would say if I had to compare it to any other movie, just in terms of tone and feel, I feel it's like it's a spiritual successor to Donnie Darko. Mm. I'm not the biggest Donnie Darko fan, but I'm not going to hold that against it. But yeah, but I'm just saying that's what it. it it's it's yeah. it's going to be way kookier than you could even imagine. Put it that yeah. way. We haven't talked. I mean, during this fight, I guess maybe now because we we keep mentioning him, but what we haven't really talked. We talked about all the performances except for Defoe. What do you think of Defoe in this? I mean, I guess he's just doing the Defoe thing, right? But this is very early in his career. This is one of like the the roles that you know kind of starts to make him. Well, um, like 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 that's how I was thinking about, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is just like you know he don't have much screen time. He's just like whatever. Like, but then I'm like, well, he already did to live and die in L.A., and I feel like. He, I feel like Freakin gave him way more opportunity to flesh out what he was doing in that movie. Well, so like filmmakers at this time, must bit like with here, right? They just realize what an interesting face he has, right? And right. not them saying anything people don't know. But if you just photograph him the right way, he's a scary looking dude. So yeah. the movie's not asking much more of him than that. Yeah, but I, w- I will say, because we should say, for the most part, they did this fight scene themselves. It took two weeks to do this fight with the hammers. And there was some stunt intervention and all that kind of thing. But uh, they mostly did it themselves. But uh, the one thing that, like, because Defoe's barely on screen. But, like, I almost think he's doing, like, um, like a, he, this is the movie where, and he, I guess you could kind of say he, he reminds you of this actor and other things, too. But this is the movie... I think most of Willem Dafoe reminds me of Klaus Kinski. And Klaus Kinski, he always knew how to walk into a scene. He always knew how to, even without saying a word, have his physicality portray a lot. And if you look at Dafoe a lot, like where he walks in with them goofy rubber suspenders, the scene where he goes to confront Tom Cody, you know, right after that, and he walks through the fire a certain way. And even during the fight scene, there's like little moments where he's posing in a certain way. And it's like... um, 
Oh, I was wrong. To Live and Die LA came out after this. So, no. So, he really did just do little bit parts. But, yeah, like, I, I think Defoe was, like, going for really, like, an expressionist thing because he knew he didn't have a lot to play with emotion or dialogue. I mean, he probably has, what, a grand total of maybe eight lines in this movie? Mm-hmm. And again, I like that. I, I... I, I like that Billy Fish and uh, and Ellen were true to their word and uh, and actually let the Sorrells open for them now. Yeah, it's most you, least you could do after destroying their bus and making them lose all their luggage. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure whatever they got paid for opening this gig was probably still one. Not only do they open, three. but that's, what I actually like is not only do they open, but they get to come out during her her number later. Like they yeah. like join her band for like a big, like well, even there, their her band is backing them here, so. So what do you what do you think of the two numbers that uh, Eileen sings at the beginning? We have uh, "Going Nowhere Fast," which is kind of like, I feel like it's kind of like an ode to Tom Cody's character, and then this scene where she sings, uh, "This is what it means to be young." I feel it's kind of like um, a little more on her side, but also the the love situation between her and Tom Cody being bittersweet. I like. I mean, I like both songs. We haven't. We never even mentioned Jim Steinman. The fact that he wrote yeah. both these songs. So the, the great Jim Steinman, um, who we also unfortunately just recently lost. Yeah. But uh, both great songs. Also, this the the, um, the song that the Sorrells are performing right now is like one of the bigger hits to come out of this movie. I think. Yeah, it was. Much, people don't even remember that it's from Streets of Fire, but this was like a like a, I remember this song more than I remember this movie actually from growing up. Yeah, the, this song. Um... What is it? I can dream about you by Dan yeah. Hartman. Yeah. Yep. So in in this one, obviously the the group is singing it. You got Stony Jackson lip singing. I gotta say, like, I don't know when the thing became that like every actor had to sing their own shit in movies. But I, I this is another thing that kind of makes this movie more of a throwback. Is there ob- the actors are obviously lip syncing the music, but I think cinematically it works better than if they would have sang it because a it's a better vocal performance than they were able to give and b i like that thing trev of like you know an actor interpreting interpreting a song that like they didn't really sing themselves but like they're kind of acting it out on stage like i don't know also just it's just also true not every actor can sing no matter what they think yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) so i gotta say so let's talk about this scene it's where tom cody says goodbye to uh Eileen before she goes on stage and like I kind of like didn't remember exactly how this ended and I was like I was like what what's he doing like why is he leaving like I was like oh he ain't really gonna leave because there, there's she I mean he's literally saying goodbye and he's telling her hey you know I know you're going places and you know I'm not the kind of guy that would carry guitars for you and all that so he's basically he like he's making it sound like whether this is his true intention or not but he's making it sound like his ego won't let him be with somebody like it's not like he doesn't even really give her the spiel of like oh I don't want to hold you back you know you need to go do your like he's just pretty much saying like I can't play second fiddle to you that's <laughs> what he's saying. What do you think about this? Well, all I can really think is again I keep bringing up my Fury Road comparison, but there's a shot here a moment of him walking through the crowd looking back and kind of giving her the nod like I'm leaving, and that is exactly yep. the way Bad Max leaves at the end of Fury Road, and it's the same idea right to where he's like Tom Cody like Max is a character that feels like everyone else is better off if I'm not around, right? Like I'm part of, I'm the yeah. problem, I guess. So I, 
I can come and I can solve your issues. I can help when you need me, but I can't stick around. So yeah, yeah that's like, uh, there's just so much about these two films that for me, like work together where again, it's just, it's this simplistic chase movie that's built off of style and just how pro and like how propulsive and energetic it is. And uh, like I said, I think I, I, like I said, I don't dislike Michael Perry's performance, but I feel like you could like cut some lines out and it would, he might even be more iconic, but uh, yeah, I do think it's weird how Tom Cody's just like, yeah, I got to leave. Cause I can't, I can't go on tour with you. <laughs> you know, I can't like yeah, carry yeah. your bags. It's like, really? You can't tour. You can't go on. You don't want to travel the country with this smoking, you know, smoke show. Like, what are, what are you talking about? Which, 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 by the way, let's let's. It's not just like, oh, it's a hot girl you can go kind of leech off of. This is the love of his life. The way it's presented in this yeah. movie, he pined for her the whole time he was gone too in the army. But that said, the fact that the movie ends with him getting in the car with McCoy and driving off—that is more like what. That's the story you actually want to see, though, right? Those are the two you want together at the end of the movie, not romantically. Yeah. No. But, for further adventures, I do want McCoy and Tom Cody together. Yeah. And I think from when they were hinting at, I forget what the part two was called, but I think part three was he would be coming back to the city. So I, it was called like going home or something. Part three was supposed to be called. So like, or subtitle that, you know, it's supposed to be the adventures of Tom Cody, this and that. And so I think he would have ended back up and I'm sure if he would have come back to the city, he would have, you know, met up with her again if she was still there. But, yeah. like, yeah, it's just, like, I got to say, like, I, I'm not going to lie. It, it probably was just the overall totality of this film being a cinematic and very, very cinematic films, even if they're not overly sentimental or not overly sad or anything. Like, they, they choked me up because, I, I, you know, there's, I realized the kind of the beauty of filmmaking and I was, like, kind of at a crescendo at this point. So this, this movie, or this part of the movie, when I was watching it the other night, and Tom Cody is is standing there it kind of reminded me of that scene in the wanderers when uh ken wall is like looking through the window at uh karen allen but it's like yeah like that's that look on michael perry's face and that's why i'm like i don't really buy the criticism it was like to me he earns his spot in this movie with that scene and like it was ripping my heart out, man. Like I was, I was like choking up. I was like, Oh, don't do it. You fucking idiot. Like, I'm just thinking to myself, don't do it. Don't walk out on her. Like, like, you know, like don't, if, if more than anything, don't leave her with sleazy ass Rick Moranis. You know what I mean? And it's like the both of you, like, what are you doing? Dumb, dumb to the point where I'm like, nah, this is too brutal. He's not really going to walk out on her. He's not really going to do it. And then like, and it's funny too. Cause Michael Perry said that, um, you know, the way he played the scene was it was tearing his heart out and uh, he just wanted to cry. And Walter Hill was like, no, heroes don't cry in this movie. Heroes don't cry. And I'm just like, I mean, he pretty much does everything short of crying. Just that look on his face. You can see how hard it is. And I'm telling you, just that shot of when it cuts to his face and he turns and he walks out the door. I was like, oh, my God, man. Like my heart literally just sunk in my chest the other night. It hit me hard. It was like melancholy for like the sake of like for no sake really just just because Tom Cody's a dumbass you know what I mean. Well, I mean again, you know, it's it's Hill playing with old classic cinema tropes, right? These yeah. these heroes always walk off alone at the end. You know, they never yeah. quite you never quite get to be with the woman at the end. By the way, Ellen Aim she really leans heavy into this uh, fist pumping move. That's that's yeah. her that's definitely her go to move. And then earlier with the hair flip too, yeah. We mean, but we didn't even talk about like the directing of these music scenes. I know like Walter Hill was kind of hard on himself afterwards, saying that he felt like yeah. um, he was like, oh, I think maybe I was out of my league with the the music. But I think like these scenes are fantastic. Like I, I think, I, I, like, I think they're the, in the, the top use of third smoke of the and movie. Light yeah. and, 
Yeah, I think yeah, I think uh, I think he was like more acclimated to it than even he thinks that he was. Yeah, I, 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 I'm surprised. I could have seen him be getting into some like music video directing coming out of this. But. Well, for sure, and it's just like because I think I think the reason it came out as good as it did was he didn't create he didn't shoot it or edit it like it was fluff. He shot he shot it like it was emotional part of the film you know what i mean yeah so it's like in the in the the songs at the beginning and the end they're amazing I was, i've been listening to the soundtrack for like oh, on spotify for the last week since i watched this and i'm like these really are as good as songs as people make them out to be i mean the music really does you know it, it, this movie didn't have the musical element at all and it was just you know whatever and they and they, they totally the songs totally contrast the awesome rye cooter score which we didn't talk about but the rye cooter score really you know, Walter Hill would use them a lot throughout his movies. That help, helps establish that Western feel. But yeah, mm-hmm. these songs, man, they're, you want to talk about pulse pounding, emotional, sweeping anthem type of songs. That's what they are. And, go, and going back to like what you said, you know, it's great that him and McCoy, you know, it's, it's not like a romantic thing. I like that she even tells him, like, hey, don't worry, you're not my type. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, because she has a she has a line earlier where she talks about an ex boyfriend. But if that line was in there, this film came out today. Boy, there'd be a lot of discussion pieces about her and the queer oh, coding of McCoy. But oh yeah, it'd be big time. It'd be like, can we claim this as representation? But you know, it's just it it is what it is. It's things were more unsaid back then. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm I'm very t- like I said, I'm very torn. I, I personally think Tom Cody made the uh, the wrong move, but well, like you said, they were also thinking there there would be more. I know Michael yeah. Prey has said that of the two sequels, I believe he said that like uh, he was told that uh, the second one would take place in the snow and the third one would be in the desert. Um, yeah. I like that idea. I like the idea of all three movies being in like a different kind of locale. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that like Walter Hill saw this character as like his comic book hero because like on the page there's there isn't much to to Tom Cody. No. It really does take just the confidence to say I think we're gonna make a movie iconic enough and get an actor who looks badass enough on screen and and has that kind of energy. And as we know, maybe they they walked away from it not believing they got the right guy. Um, that's too bad. It's too bad. And I also just like yeah. those inter- those interviews with Gross where he kind of puts it all on Michael Prey. That always bothers me when anyone throws a movie's failure all on the, the shoulders of like one person like that, especially the one person who clearly it's not. Like any other actor in this role, the, the same things that kind of sunk this movie would have sunk the movie no matter what. Like you said, like a lack of promotion and, you know, a studio yeah. not getting behind it. To say that, oh, it's Michael, Michael Perret's fault. Come on, man. Like, just that just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, and the kind of semi-retro, because at the time, like the only, if you look back at uh, early 80s films, Trev, which I guess this is tracking to a little bit closer to the mid '80s, but even then, there were, in the '80s, like you know, I grew up watching all these movies. Like every movie that took place in the '50s, then was a coming of age raunchy comedy. So mm-hmm. to like kind of go back to like a little bit of a '50s vibe with like, you know, like a cool action hero and stuff. Like I don't, I don't know how much like the teens at the time were really buying that with the '50s influence. You know, when like everything they saw about the '50s was like, 
you know, sticking your dick through the wall in Porky's or <laughs> falling out of the Studebaker on top of the girl in Mischief or whatever. Or, or Tom, our boy Tom Cruise, he, he did a 50s picture. You ever see Losing It? Directed by mm-hmm. Curtis Hansen. Yeah, so, yeah, I just don't, I don't know. I'm not saying it sunk the movie, but again, I just think this movie would have done better. And I'm glad it didn't do it, but if it was contemporary, you know, with, with that kind of filmmaking style Walter Hill had, you know, I think it would have done better. I just noticed in the credits, uh, wardrobe provided by Giorgio Armani. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why, because so, so many of the, uh, the the clothes were very kind of like, like, especially what Tom Cody wears. It's just like Salvation Army type looking shit. Yeah. Now, did, did you ever play the video game Final Fight, which apparently was like I did. heavily influenced by this movie? And you can once you know that, you can totally see it, like just in terms of like the story of the game and the design of the characters. Yeah, yeah. Like when they, when I read that, doing research on this, I was like, oh yeah, because they totally just kidnapped the girl and everything. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you what what was the Walter Hill because I mean, uh, what was the Walter Hill movie of your like your youth that you remember him by more from your youth? Well, it would definitely have to be the Warriors. I think yeah. the Warriors is probably the Walter Hill movie I've seen more than any other. Um, I, I liked uh, Forty Eight Hours when I was young, and I, I particularly remember seeing uh, another Forty Eight Hours in the theater uh, as a kid. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I would say, I mean, The Warriors today is still my, my go-to Walter, Walter Hill movie. Um, yeah, like, I remember, the, like we were saying when we did that episode, I remember The Warriors being a big deal in my whatever grade school when it hit, when it hit uh, not even cable, but just TV, local TV armor, everybody was talking about it. But I, th- I think the one that um, I kind of, uh, like... Kind of whatever, and I, and I really, I've actually really been wanting to rewatch it, but it just never comes out like on any format. Like I don't even think you can get it on DVD, like to the point where it's almost like a um, a lost film of his. Is did you ever see Extreme Prejudice with Nick Nolte? I have not. Yeah, like because like I'm looking at his filmography. Like I was like really aware of The Warriors and Forty Eight Hours, but those were kind of like movies I caught on TV. And then later I did catch Southern Comfort, but it was really Streets of Fire where I, like in Crossroads, I'd say Crossroads was a big movie. But I remember going to see Extreme Prejudice, and it was like I have to rewatch it because I literally haven't seen it beginning to end uh, since the theater. But that was like a movie where I was like, "Damn, this is gritty." It was like uh, Nick Nolte was a um, like a Texas Marshal or Texas Ranger. And it was just like a super gritty movie, and I remember going to see that and thinking, like, man, this movie's badass, you know what I mean? And like, uh, you know, later on, Walter Hill did like Red Heat and some other movies that were good, but like, yeah, like, well, I want to. I actually really enjoyed the Bruce Willis one too. Did you like that one at all? Where he's in uh, the I, desert? I, no, town? I didn't. I didn't no. like that. I mean, I I should probably revisit it. I didn't like it when I, I haven't seen it in years, but yeah. I remember finding it like. That's uh, disappointing when I checked it out the first time. Yeah, I know that was like another that was like another Yo Jimbo like remake. Yeah, it was. Um, and yeah, it just didn't it didn't do much for me. I felt like there was not enough. I, I might like it more now because I think at the time I wanted more action from it. Yeah, so I think I you would. Because yeah. that was one of the ones like I saw it in the theater, enjoyed it, but then like I bought the DVD right when it came out and I kind of watched it over the next couple of years and kind of grew on me. But yeah, I don't know and. Uh, I haven't seen his last, last movie, but I saw his, the last theatrical movie with Stallone, uh, Bullet in the Head, I thought was very good. Like, it's not it's not amazing, but it's a good minor movie, you know? 
It's interesting how we decided to record this episode like a, you know, a week or two ago and like we hit at the right just the right zeitgeist moment because yesterday it was announced that uh, Willem Dafoe and Walter Hill are teaming up for a new western. Did you see that? No, I haven't heard this at all. Yeah, That's uh, amazing. Dead, dead, deadline announced yesterday. Walter Hill is making a new western called Dead for a Dollar starring Christoph Waltz and Willem Dafoe. Amazing. Amazing. I, I hope you get I mean obviously, you know, in this day and age what's theatrical and what's not doesn't really mean anything. But I was a little bit worried with the, uh, you know, after Bullet to Head uh, did so poorly theatrical. I thought he was going to be relegated to almost micro budget kind of directed yeah. video movies. And uh, with them two guys in it, like, I'm sure it'll at least have a healthy budget for him to work with. So, yeah. I'm, I, I, like, I, you know, knock on wood, we're, we're pretty good at cursing people here, Trev. But, like, I, I I didn't even look it up. I don't even know how old Walter Hill is, but I'm guessing he's got to be in his 70s at this point. Um, 79. 79. Oh, wow. He's even older than I thought. But, uh, yeah, like, you know, granted, the interviews I just watched with him were from 2013. It's not like they were from yesterday, but still. Um, I don't know. He's, he seems – it's weird. He, he seems like a guy who hasn't really changed at all, his temperament. I mean, he hasn't mm-hmm. – it doesn't really seem like he's mellowed with age. It seems like the same themes he was – you're making films about in his 20s and 30s and you know he's he's still whatever 40 years later he's still still the same filmmaker so now i gotta ask goat did your did your streets of fire blue end with a uh, a title card telling you to visit universal studios uh i forgot but i remember that happening at like that was yeah, actually there was like a little thing at the end of the credits where it said when in hollywood visit universal studios and there was like a drawing of the tram yeah, and there was actually multiple versions of that, and I I loved that you know throughout the years, and it it went away. I don't think they do it anymore. I haven't seen it. On actually, just watch now, a Universal movie the other night, and I didn't see it. So for us, the the movie's obviously wrapped up, and we're just kind of continuing the discussion. Should we? I mean, should we say anything about Road to Hell, the the sequel to this film? Yeah, I was. Would you mind? Because I don't think a lot of people even know about this. In all honesty, would you mind kind of setting up really what it is? Um, yeah, I mean, so I haven't seen it, so yeah, from, from what I I. So I, I think it's actually pretty tough to see at this point, yeah. but, uh, I think you have to order like the Blu-ray directly from like, you know, Pune himself or something, but, <laughs> but the, Albert. Like, Albert, the, the old, the great Albert Pune decided, I think he was a huge Streets of Fire fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess he was, you know, like, like many kind of bemoaned the fact that these sequels were never made. So he just kind of took it upon himself in 2008 to make an unofficial sequel um but unofficial it's like i don't know it's it's like one of those like fan films where the actor actually shows up um yeah. so tom cody uh played by michael perret and uh his sister reva again played by deborah van valkenberg mm-hmm. uh ellen aim definitely not played by diane lane instead no. <laughs> of played by someone else but I've, I've only seen the trailer from the trailer it, it looks fairly clear to me that i think what you're what you're seeing is that him and Ellen have had a daughter and it looks like the movie is perhaps him trying to protect the daughter from something. Yeah. But the big thing from the, from the trailer is it looks to be filmed about 95% in front of green screens. Oh, and, uh, yeah. it's, uh, have you seen any of the footage? Goat or no? I, I seen a trailer a while ago, but like, I knew yeah, there was some really it's, strange, it's definitely like... like one of those garage green screen kind of movies. You know, it looks like a spy kids movie. Everything looks very, very fake. Um, but I thought what was crazy is like they have some of the Steinman songs like in the trailer and then they actually so, you know, this movie was called Streets of Fire because they thought they were going to get the Springsteen song. Yeah. And then they did not. And so that's why I turned to Steinman to write original songs. 
but they they sing the Springsteen song in the trailer to Road to Hell, and I was like, well, I, there's no way Albert Pune paid for that Springsteen song, right? Like well, I don't know what's going. But. If it's a cover version, you can get away with it because I believe you pay a much much small with a cover version. You pay a much much smaller royalty just through ASCAP or whatever. Because I've actually looked into that. And that's kind of why you see a lot of cover songs used in the early '80s movies because they want to pay for rights or whatever. But either way, it's it's disappointing. It's a green screen film just because. Um, I mean, obviously, you know Albert Pune. If anybody knows about him, he's a very low budget filmmaker for the most part of his career. I mean, I wouldn't expect him to have the type of uh, production design resources that this film had, but uh, I think doing shit on a green screen would really rob it of any kind of potential to have. Yeah, that's the bummer to me because, like, honestly, I'm. I'm fully down for like the idea of someone else making sequel to this as long as you have Michael Perry back. Like I don't, I don't yeah. think that's like the. I'm not opposed to it, but the green screen thing is what keeps me from like rushing out to see it because it just it looks too corny. Ultimately, like it looks well, more like a joke almost. But well, that's exactly what Alex Cox did in his own film with the uh, Repo Man when he made Repo Chick, and it was just kind of a girl. Very look like it looked like something you'd see on a public access channel. Uh, just some girl in front of a green screen. Yeah. But yeah, very disappointing. But Michael Prey, uh, you know, talk about if, if people don't think he's a great actor, let me just point out that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, Grand Bush played two different characters in Lethal Weapon. Michael Prey yeah. plays a different character in all three Blood Rain movies. So yeah. That shows, I, you, that shows you his range, you know? I'm, I'm going to date myself both in time and also in, in taste, Trev. I saw the first Blood Rain movie in a movie theater, and I actually kind of enjoyed it. I own all three Blood Rain movies on DVD, Goat. Um, Amazing. I'm a little bit of an Uwe Boll defender. Um, oh, me I don't, too. I think, obviously, he is what he is. He also understands what he is. Whenever I hear someone say like Uwe Boll is like the worst director and makes the worst movies in cinema, that's just like that. Boy, that's really that... Um, stupid Razzie's mentality of let's dunk yeah. on the easiest thing. And if you really think those are the worst movies around, come on. Like he's just yeah. making B movie trash, but he knows it. And there's like, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. They're not good, but they're entertaining. Usually I think uh, for those blood rain films. Yeah. I actually, I actually like the first blood rain for like, it's not good, but it's like, it's just so fun. Um, the second one, which is a Western is actually pretty boring and not that great. Uh, mm-hmm. But the third one, if anyone is like looking for like just really, like a good time total B movie, hell, like D movie trash. Blood Rain, uh, I think, I can't remember the third one's called. I think it's called Blood Rain the Third Reich because it's finally like yeah, the World is. War II one. Yeah. Yeah. That one is so fun. Like, that is just such a, like, dumb, trauma esque kind of B movie. Uh, that one's a good time for sure. Yeah. I've only seen parts of them. And it, yeah, the Western one, I want to say at one point it was on Netflix streaming, like, way back in the day, like 10 plus years ago. And I tried to watch it and I couldn't get through it. But uh, I'm gonna say controversial because because I was I was kind of drawn in all honesty to the first Blood Rain because uh, I'm a big fan of Michelle Rodriguez so I kind of like lost interest in the franchise uh, you know because she's only in the first movie but um I actually kind of like the replacement girl more than I like Christina Loken in all honesty really uh, and, and Natasha Malth yeah Natasha Malty or Malty or what yeah mm-hmm. for what little bit I've seen what do you, what's your who's the better Blood Rain to you. I actually like Christina Loken a little bit more. Okay. I think Malty has like um, there's something about her voice where she does not seem very intimidating as Blood Rain. I know like mm. who cares, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like yeah, I like I said, they are just I'm watching them because they're trash. But uh, yeah, 
but yeah, I, I like Christina Loken more, I think, than than her. But whatever. Like I said, they're just they're just fun. I don't watch these for them to be good. I watch them because no, yeah. uh, I watch them to be bad and just laugh at them and or laugh along with them because I, I do think Uwe Boll is in on the joke usually, honestly. Oh yeah, the the one uh, Uwe Boll movie I actually really would like to see. Um, and, and by the way, I actually like his dramas. He did a straight up drama before he kind of got too wild with the uh, video game films. He did a drama called Heart of America, which is about mm-hmm. a small town and like kind of violence and uh, shooting and stuff. I thought that was good. I actually enjoyed the first Rampage movie for what it was. It was pretty ridiculous, but for what it was, I enjoyed that. But um, I he did a he, he also made a movie called I don't know if you ever saw or know of uh, he did a war film called Tunnel Rats. Yeah, uh, that like was I actually, wa- that was that was good. It was like a good movie, and like no one talked. Like he's not like that's the thing. Well, if you give him like the right kind of script, and if he cares, like he's he he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I've been wanting to see that one because um, there was this weird weird time where he like I thought he had dropped out of filmmaking, which later he would drop out. Which uh, by the way, thanks for joining us for Bullcast. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, like he made Tunnel Rats, and he made uh, I want to say there was like a movie called Stoic or something. It was like Eddie Furlong going to prison or something. Like, but he made a couple that like I wasn't even aware of till like way after the fact. And no, I, I have not seen Tunnel Rats. I think you can get it on DVD because I think it's been in my Netflix queue literally for like fifteen years, but I never got around to seeing it. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to see his first film that launched his career, German Fried Movie, which was like a German. Uh, take on Kentucky Fried movie and I've never seen that get an official release or even like you know on YouTube or anything like I don't know how you would see that one or if it was ever commercially released outside of cinemas in Germany but yeah yeah so that's it I like I mean we dipped our toes a little bit into Walter Hill territory but I th- I think definitely he's got some other movies that are interesting I actually have a couple of mo- his movies on disc that I haven't watched yet I got the driver and hard times on Blu-ray that I need. Oh, uh, the driver! You never seen the driver? That the driver is great. Yeah, no, like uh, I have the Blu-ray, and I sat down. And I watched the first twenty minutes of it a while ago, and like something happened, and I, you know, meant to get back to it, and never did. But like, yeah, the from the little bit I've seen of it, the driver to me looks like was the main inspiration for the Nicholas Winding Refn film Drive. But uh, I could be wrong yeah. about that. But what do you think of Southern Comfort? I love it. Uh, I want to say, I want to say I saw it long after the fact. I want to say I didn't see it till like the mid '90s on TV. But I love it, man. It's fucking awesome. Powers Booth, Carradine, mm-hmm. they kill it in that movie. I love that. Like to me, I don't know. To me, that scratches the itch personally a lot better than Deliverance does. But that's just me. Wow. What a, how disrespectful to the memory of Ned Beatty. I know. As soon as that came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, shit, Ned Beatty just died. But uh, <laughs> but maybe that's a good thing uh, that, you know, I prefer the one. Maybe, maybe I'm more of a Ned Beatty fan where I prefer the movie where he doesn't get anally raped in it. So. Okay, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> I was, I was, this is kind of like a fun fact because I remember showing my dad this probably 10 or 12 years ago. But uh, the the well, he's not a little boy now. He's an elderly man now. But the 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 kid that was in the movie, the the plays a banjo. He mm-hmm. he like before like he was on eBay like back in the day. Like I want to say like I found him like two thousand eight, two thousand nine ish. Just Xerox and screenshots of uh, him in the movie and signing them and selling them through eBay. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, Trev, I I want to say. Uh, is thank you for bringing this one up because I actually 
um, meant to cover this on the show years ago, and some stuff happened, and we didn't get to it. But uh, when you when you know we were looking me and you looking for something to do and kind of perplexed, and then you brought this up, I was like, oh man, I would love to do it. And you know, I always liked the movie, but it's one of those things that you know sometimes you think you like a movie and then you rewatch it and it, you know, it just, maybe you just forgot how great it was, or maybe just at this point in life, you appreciate it more than you did earlier. Oh, but no, yeah. that's, that's totally what happened. Like I said, like I, I saw it come up on Netflix. I saw some people talking about it on Twitter. I was like, okay, yeah, that might be a fun one to do. Maybe I'll, I'll go back and check it out and see if it looks like something I like to do with goat. And I started watching it. And like I said, I, then that's when I realized, mm, I don't think I've ever seen this all the way through. And dude, I completely fell in love with it. And like I said, yeah. I bought, I like, I, I went and bought the Blu-ray pretty much immediately. I showed it to, I introduced it to another friend quickly. So like in the last couple of weeks, I've watched this movie like three times now. And oh, wow. this is definitely a Blu-ray I'm going to take off the shelf and, and revisit a lot. Like this, this yeah. is a, this is a great movie. I, I do love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more than fair to say if you got a copy of this sitting on the shelf, I mean, you're going to dust it out possibly every year. Definitely. Yeah. Don't, don't let more than two years go by before you revisit this. Cause I mean, you know, I mean, it's to me, it's just right up my alley. It's that blend of being over the top, but not being campy at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I just, that's the sweet zone of movies for me. Like you're going over the top, you're going wild, you're going outrageous, but you're not really, nudge nudge wink in the audience being campy you know what i mean like i well and, I, and because of like the simplicity we talked about too it's a movie that doesn't demand a lot of your attention or yeah. focus so you can just kind of have it on in the background or you know and, and you probably will get sucked into it but it's not the godfather you have to get yourself into a certain kind of mood to watch it right yeah it's it's an easy breezy watch you'll be entertained from beginning to end you know, like like it's it's one of those movies. I think it works both ways. As a popcorn movie, you can sit down with a big bowl of popcorn, eat it, be larger than life, transfixed. And it's also a great movie you where you can sit down and drink beer with your buddies and watch it. And it's you know it works both ways. So, or you can just watch it and enjoy it on a cinematic level too of the all the interesting things Hill is doing with the genre and I, I, visuals. I, I, yeah. I could definitely put on a beret and sip some Perrier and enjoy this film. <laughs> but yeah, so again, Trev, I want to thank you. And obviously, um, you know, more than ever, we want people to go check out your other shows, um, Days of Future Podcasts, Examining the X-Men, and also amazing, amazing coverage going on and uh, failure to franchise of Mela Junovich, which by the time this airs, this will be Mela Jelajevich, so... It will be over, but uh, an epic yeah. event. Yeah, yeah, no. So we are heading into our summer surprise. We actually let an online randomizer pick our next five movies. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so we got some we got some interesting ones out coming up, including Go. I'll 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 drop the news here. Uh, although you'll you'll hear it at the end of uh, the newest episode of Failure Franchise. But one of the movies the online randomizer picked for us, and I know this is going to excite you. It'll be a first time watch for me. Solo, a Star Wars story. Oh my God! Yep. Wow, it's yep. going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. happen. Yep. It's going to happen. Amazing. The day I thought never would come is trying to come. Amazing. And it's 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 great timing too because we're just like right in the midst of like Star Wars is heating up now. Oh no, wait, no, it's not. No, sorry, <laughs> I was thinking of something else. No, no, Star Wars is not heating up. But yeah, always a fun day. And also too, I'm gonna th- I'm gonna throw out a uh, a shout out to um to our uh, our friends over at the Kaiju Transmissions. I really yeah. enjoyed um 
I held off on the episode um, that you guest starred on because I wanted to wait till I saw the movie. And uh, for uh, for my birthday movie, I picked Monster Hunter, and I loved it. And I I loved uh, your analysis of it on the over on the Kaiju transmissions. And I f- feel like you and me are completely on the same page with that that film. Yeah. No, I'll also give because they are buddies. I, I in that same vein, thank you for shouting up the one I was on. But I'm going to give a shout out to an episode I was not on. Um, if anybody wants to hear like a really great interview episode. They were lucky enough to interview the director of, um, uh, was it uh, Ape versus Monster, the Asylum Mockbuster of Godzilla versus Kong? Oh yeah, I saw somebody that. Somebody who's always yeah. I. So I was on the episode reviewing that film, but I, I wasn't able to join them for the interview. But I thought uh, Bird and Matt did a really great job with that interview, and I, I thought it was just, it really is a fascinating interview, and I, I, I like that guy so much, and. I've always been interested in like that world of cinema, right? That asylum mockbuster yeah. model, and he is very open and uh, telling about it. And uh, yeah, that's a that's definitely want to check out for for people like me who are really into B movie cinema and uh, the perils of that and the difficulties of that. How quickly they have to shoot them, how the scripts are quickly written to to tie into yeah. the film and coming along. It's it's a great it's a great episode. Yeah, I I I'll, I. I can tell you I'll be listening to that tomorrow when I'm working, but uh, yeah, like I always love that whole asylum thing because I feel like you're trying to rip off a movie when you've only had trailers to go by. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So anyway, again, Trev, thanks for obviously just coming to hang out. As always, it's always a good time. You know, as people know, we could sit around and we can talk for three hours, can't we? Yeah, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but but also too bringing this great movie along with you, uh, Streets of Fire, or as it's known in Germany, Strassen in Flammen. That's what that's what Uwe Boll uh, called it when he went to the cinema <laughs> I, as a teenager. I, I like that. I like that better. Strassen in Flammen. Strassen in Flammen. That's right. Sorry, right, everybody. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you right here again soon in the movie graveyard. <laughs>